This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner. This is the war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am wonderful. It is another day in paradise. You know, and I was thinking a lot about last week. And look, you know, you've only been working with me for a month. But, you know, you, you knew me a little bit before that. And when I'm right, I'll fight my ass off. <laughs> I, I, I really will. Or when I think I'm right. And just because I think I'm right doesn't mean I am. It's just I believe I am. Right. But when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And at the end of the show, you know, I just... You know, I've just got a little ground I'd like to cover with you and wrap up some business. Okay. Well, stay tuned for that. And be sure to check out next week here on the show because, man, we have got a lot of fun coming up for you today. I guess we should go ahead and mention that the reality is that today is going to be our best show ever because it's all about Chris Jericho. And I've looked forward to this one. He made the list. He made the list. There you go. I like it. I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while, just because I think his story is so interesting. Let's get started about why we're really here, though. Chris Jericho. And, of course, I think everybody is waiting for us to talk about why Chris left. But first, let's talk about how Chris came in. He had a lot of buzz in the mid-90s, and uh, a lot of people assumed that he might actually show up sooner than he did. Because you developed a bit of a reputation for finding talent like this and signing them to WCW, but it takes him actually going through ECW. And then allegedly you see him at the world peace festival in AAA, And that's where you first sort of figure out who Chris Jericho is and extend an offer. Is that the way you remember it going down? Um, you know, I wasn't aware of Chris at all in ECW much, you know, to the chagrin of my good close personal friend and the advocate of Brock Lesnar, Paul Heyman. I didn't watch any. I've watched zero. In fact, I don't even think I could get ECW in Atlanta um, on my in my cable package back then. So I really wasn't paying attention to him in ECW. I know other guys were. I think Terry Taylor probably was. I think Kevin Sullivan probably was. But I wasn't. And that's not where I became aware of him. I became aware of him really um, after I hired Benoit Malenko Guerrero. And made a commitment to build that cruiserweight division. You know, from what I recall, it was really their input and them kind of putting Jericho on my radar, which is one of the reasons why I went to the the event in Los Angeles. One of the reasons, not the sole reason, uh, but was to check him out. So, of course, Jericho's doing whatever he can to get noticed. And he makes trips through Japan and Mexico and really... Japan is where the big buzz starts. He, he has the stint in ECW that we referenced. And then allegedly, when you finally get a chance to meet him at the World Peace Festival, the deal comes about pretty easy. He even wrote about it and he basically said something like, quote, Benoit's been recommending you like crazy, and that's enough for me. Do you want to come work for me in WCW? And that was it. After years of toiling away in foreign countries, high school gyms, bowling alleys, and bingo halls, I'd finally been given the golden ticket to work in the United States. Quote, here's my number. Call my secretary. We'll arrange a meeting and make a deal. 
I couldn't believe how quickly it had transpired. So this is sort of Jericho's account from his book of this first initial meeting. And you sort of were, you know, fucking Willy Wonka of wrestling in the United States in this era, because you were taking chances on guys who really probably wouldn't have had the same opportunity to work with Vince McMahon. And even if they not, not really, probably not, not in a fucking lifetime at that point. Yeah. They, they were hiring monsters. I was making and had made by that time, you know, we're well into a, we were well into the cruiserweight division and I was committed to that division. So yeah, I was making deals for guys that had great reputations guys who, you know, and I wasn't just Chris Benoit, you know, I talked to Brad Ringens. I talked to a number of people, um, who knew of Chris. They didn't know him personally as well as Benoit did, but I had a lot of good, um, responses and he, he, Got a highly favorable response from just about everybody I talked to. But yeah, I was taking I wasn't taking chances on them. I was actively looking for that kind of talent to to build that division. So let's talk through that because a, a lot of people sort of take you to task for the decision to sign what is effectively, you know, for lack of a better word, a lot of older talent that had really made their name and their claim to fame on Vince's TV. But yet at the same time, you're also the guy who's doing what you just said. You're signing the Benoit's and the Jericho's. Was this you trying to find a delicate balance of these are proven draws that are recognizable on a national landscape and that may get people to actually check it out. But if we have this sort of wrestling talent on the underneath, they'll stick around. Is that part of the strategy or am I way off base? No, you're not way off base. You're close, but it was broader than that. Um, you know, I had made up my mind that Nitro had to Nitro had to have a more diverse presentation. And that, look, we're talking about ninety six. You know, we're talking about ninety seven. Those were hugely profitable years for for WCW. And so, anybody that wants to take me to task for relying on the older guys just need to remember that those were the years when we were kicking the WWF's ass the, as badly as ever, and we were making money hand over fist. So remember that. But also, you know, especially when we had a three-hour show, I knew there was a couple things. One is I wanted to break it up. I wanted Nitro to represent a more international vibe, I wanted to have a, a strong Japanese presence on my show, which is why I did the deal with New Japan and why I was so committed to that deal the way that I was. And there was other reasons, too. It helped me offset some of my, my talent expense because every time I would send talent over to New Japan, they would pay me the equivalent of that talent salary. So instead of carrying someone for 52 weeks a year, I may only carry them for 42 weeks or 32 weeks or depending on how often the talent went over there. So it was a way to offset some of my talent expense, but it was also a way for me to bring some Japanese talent over under that, that relationship so that our show had a more international feel, which the WWF clearly did not have. It was the same reason why I brought a lot of the, the Mexicans in, because I, I wanted that Lucha vibe and that presence and that international feel in our show. But 
in addition to the international feel, the cruiserweight division for me, and it's one of the reasons why I always had it in the middle of the three-hour show. It always kicked off when it was three hours. It always kicked off right at 9 o'clock because we would set up our stories in the first hour. More often than not, we would have some of our, I'll call them preliminary, um, undercard stories, angles, matches, if you will, exposing talent. And it, the show would theoretically, more often than not, especially during that time, it would build and it would build. But I conditioned the audience to know that at nine o'clock, shit was going to hit the fan because that's where I positioned the cruiserweights in our format. And I did it intentionally because I knew the action would be faster, it would be more dynamic, it would visually, it would be completely different than what we were going to see in the main event. And that was such an important – I mean that was the underlying motivation for the cruiserweight division because everybody was doing the same things. Just like right now when you watch you know, Monday Night Raw or SmackDown, everybody's basically doing the same things and wrestling the same style. There is very little diversity in the presentation of that show. There's diversity in the characters and the storylines and all that. I'm not knocking them. It's not what I'm here for. But – when you look at that show and you look at the moves and you look at the presentation, it's kind of all the same. And I had that problem with Nitro. And I really believe that. And I go to my grave believing and in, in, in knowing that the Cruiserweight division was designed to provide a completely diverse presentation at that 9 o'clock hour. So when someone sat down and made a three-hour commitment to Nitro, they knew they were going to get some of the younger talent, some of the newer storylines, some of the beginning of angles. They knew at 9 o'clock shit was going to hit the fan, and they were going to see some of the most athletic, fastest-paced wrestling they'd ever seen anywhere because outside of Nitro, it didn't exist on a consistent basis on any major platform like ours. And then, of course, we would satisfy the audience that liked those older guys that, by the way, were allowing me to kick the WWF's ass. So it was a diverse – it was just like going to a buffet where everything on the buffet was outstanding. You may not like the prime rib, but you loved the salmon, and that's what that was. Well, people loved it, that's for sure. And um, it led to a pretty interesting exchange because this is really – the first time that Jericho has a big break like this. And he even wrote in his book that he was pretty nervous to actually meet you. Once he takes you up on your offer to fly to Atlanta, he says, you showed up, you know, gave him off maybe an arrogant vibe. And, uh, says you were in jeans and cowboy boots and a leather jacket. And it just didn't really fit what his perception of the head of a multimillion dollar company would be. And he says, you got straight to the point. Says you didn't want to bullshit him, and you you really wanted him to come work for WCW, and you even compared him to Shawn Michaels, sort of insinuating that you could be our WCW's Shawn Michaels. But then you also said, "I'd love to see a Jericho Brad Armstrong feud." I mean, I really see this Armstrong Jericho thing, and I don't know why, but in hindsight, that sort of made me laugh. When you guys actually get down to the money part of the conversation, you just hit him with it. What type of money are you looking for? What is your expectation? And he asked for what he believes is an astronomical amount of money. He had been making about $50,000 between all of his other efforts in Japan and Mexico and the independence. He asked for a hundred grand and you counter with 135. You raise it right away because you said, you know, I sort of see you in the vein of 
Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. And here's what those guys are making. So I'll bring you in for that and then kick you another, you know, 30,000 or so to relocate to Atlanta. And he's just bugging out at, oh my God, this is so much more money than I imagined. And even wrote in his book, I'd just been exposed to the magical generosity of ATM Eric. What can you tell us about that day? You guys met probably at Jack and Jill's in Atlanta at the bottom of CNN tower and sort of beat up the negotiation process here. You know, when I, and I like Chris, Chris and I are good friends. And if he was sitting, you know, at the table with me right now, I would say the same thing that I'm about to say to you. Chris Jericho is really great at putting himself over. In fact, there's nobody better at putting over Chris Jericho than Chris Jericho. And as often the case, when guys write these books, they're not writing facts. They're not writing details that do anything other than put themselves over and put over the people they're working for, by the way, when they're publishing that book. Because it was the WWE that published it. That narrative that you just described fits the ATM Eric narrative that had been so prevalent for so long when, you know, everybody that was leaving WCW and trying to get over with WWE would pound that. Like, and it was because the core of that narrative is that the only reason Eric Bischoff was able to defeat the WWF is because he had Ted Turner's money. The core of that narrative is bullshit. It's false. I beat the WWF because I was smarter, because I was more creative, because I took a chance on a, on a formula that disrupted the way that the WWF had been producing wrestling and WCW for decades. And the disruption of that formula forced WWF at that time to copy our formula. It was the formula that beat WWF. It wasn't Ted Turner's money. And by the way, it wasn't like I walked into to, 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 to bust the narrative because to do a good job answering your question, I'm going to have to bust the narrative. The narrative was all Ted Turner wanted to do was put WWF out of business. Wrong. Number one. Number two, the day that I took over WCW, nobody came into me and said, Hey, Eric, just let us know how much money you want. You got it, brother. That's bullshit. That is so, there is nothing more antithetical to the truth than that. When I took over WCW, I was given a mandate. Don't fuck it up in terms of PR. (laughs) Right. Because Bill Watts had done such a phenomenal job of burning down the public relations house of WCW. Nobody in that entire fucking company, almost Ted Turner included, who was the last holdout of people that was going to give us one more shot. Everybody else wanted to burn WCW to the ground and pretend it never existed. Not because it was losing 10 or 12 or $15 million a year on $24 million worth of gross revenue. That's not what they were pissed off about. They were pissed off about all the other stupid shit that Bill Watts did. That's what I inherited and guess what when i inherited it the first thing that i did was cut out house shows why because they were losing fucking money why did i do that because i knew if i didn't stop the bleeding financially i was never going to get another nickel added to our budget i literally conrad i literally in a director's meeting one day sat down at the table there's probably six or eight department heads sitting at the table with me. And I, I said, every one of you get up right now, go to your desks, come back and tell me how many pencils you have in your desk. And they all looked at me like I was stoned and they all came back and they told me 
And my, my response to them, and I can't remember word for word, sorry for all of you haters out there, it was 20 fucking years ago, but my response, as I paraphrase myself, was great. Now you know how many pencils you have because those are assets, and if you don't know how many what your assets are, you can't possibly try to run this business profitably. That was my way of making the point, is that we had to cut the guts out of it. We had to stop the bleeding in order to build it back up again. And I was under so much scrutiny when I took over the in 94, 95, even when when um, Chris came in in 96, man, they were not handed out money. I had started getting a little bit more. They were giving me more and more of a budget because I was proving myself. I proved myself in 94 when I get in. Well, 93, really, when I forced the issue to cut out the house shows pissed a lot of people off. A lot of the boys hated my guts for doing it because they were scared. But it was my opinion then, and it, it is now. If I had to do it all over again, yes, I would do the same fucking thing. Because the, 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 the prevailing logic when I took over the company, and Bob Dew, God bless him, good guy. I'm friends with his daughter. Sorry, Lori. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to tell the truth. Bob Dew, his, his solution to losing money in house shows was to do more house shows. I would argue with him. This is why I ended up becoming president of the company. I would say, Bob, we lose money every time we go out the fucking door. Every time we go out the door, we lose money. So your solution is to go out the door more often. That's the kind of stuff that I had to fight in 93, in 94, in 95. It's one of the reasons why I took the shows, the, the syndicated shows, off of the road that were extremely expensive to produce, and we couldn't do it. We couldn't afford it, and I had to save money. I had to take those shows off the road and put them in the Disney MGM Studios. It was a horseshit choice in many respects for the wrestling fan, for the talent, although there was some upside to it, clearly. But from a production point of view, other than the visuals, it was really hard to do it from a storytelling point of view. But we had no choice because ultimately it saved us money. And the combination of these money-saving um, decisions that I was making in 94 and 95 started to loosen up the purse, purse strings because I was starting to show a trend or, or at least a trajectory that we could at least break even. And it wasn't until I started proving that trajectory financially that I started getting a little bit more money to spend. So that's the truth. But the narrative guys like Chris in his book and Mick Foley and so many others, that because they wanted to, they wanted to retell that narrative because it got them over. I was a heel, both on camera and in real life to them. You, you couldn't get yourself over faster, whether you're Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm sorry, Steve Austin or whatever he was when he went to WCW or Mick Foley or anybody else or Chris Jericho when you go to WWE. What the fuck do you think these guys are going to say? No, you guys got it all wrong about Eric Bischoff. He actually did some pretty amazing things in WCW, and I'm really glad he gave me a chance to get the exposure. Otherwise, I might not be here. How long do you think Chris Jericho would have lasted in that locker room? Right. So keep you, – you know, when we go through this stuff – you know, the audience, and I'm not talking about you, Conrad, although you're probably one of them, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when I say things like context is king and, and I emphasize context, you, you've got to kind of go back and look at those times and look at the, the, the facts versus the bullshit that was written, whether it's in a book or whether it's in Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet, because it's not all true. 
And there are ele- there's certainly there's elements to truth to it. And let's talk about an element while I'm answering your three part question in this long fucking winded answer. Oh my god, damn, I'm getting thirsty already. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I did offer Chris what I offered Dean and Eddie. That's what I wanted to ask is what's the strategy there? Because it feels like, you know, you went to the, here's the strategy. It's really simple, bro. It's Oh God. Oh, bro. It's, (laughs) it's really simple. When Eddie and Dean and Chris came in to talk about a deal, they came in together, right? That was part of their deal. They were, they weren't going to negotiate individually. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to try to split them up. I wasn't going to work one against the other and make you know make them paranoid and you know just I, I, it's just not the way I did business then or now. Right. I'm pretty transparent about the way I do things. And when they came in, they wanted to come in together. I knew exactly the roles I wanted them to play. I knew exactly how much money I had in my budget to pay them. I knew exactly what my expectations of them were, and I agreed to pay them all equally. And that was the, the the number that we arrived at. So when I brought Chris in with fully in, in with the full intention of having having Chris at that same level as those guys, the last thing I want to do is lowball a guy so that once he gets there and he finds out after he's been there for a couple of weeks from his close personal friends Chris Benoit and Eddie and Dean that they're making forty percent more than he is or twenty percent more than he is, then I got a pissed off camper, and I didn't want that. I wanted to try to create a, a, a parody, if you will, with certain guys as often as I could. You couldn't always do that, with, especially with your top guys. But with what these guys were at that point, as talented and amazing as they all ended up being later on as a result of the opportunities that they all got on Nitro because of the cruiserweight division. But at the time when they first step into WCW, they were relatively speaking unknowns outside of very devoted hardcore wrestling audience. The mainstream audience didn't know who they were. We had to build that, but I paid them fairly because I knew what they were going to do and I knew where they were going to go. And I wanted to treat Chris fairly. So if that makes me a bad guy, if that makes me ATM Eric, so that it fits into a really cutesy little narrative that Chris wanted in his book, so be it. Well, in fairness, and I appreciate that you're popping off. This is why people are listening. But, you know, if a guy asked for a certain number and it's less than you were thinking you were going to pay him, if you are supposed to, you know, try, if you're trying to sort of, be a good steward to the company with this cash that you've been entrusted with. What's wrong with just giving him what he wanted? What's wrong with lowballing him because he doesn't know what the other guys are making? Hang on now. What's wrong is, with is, what's is, wrong with bringing him in and paying him less than his friends when a month later he's going to go, "What the fuck? You took advantage of me? Why are these guys making more? I'm worth more?" Because that's exactly what would have happened. Well, but in the in the wrestling business, there is that whole you don't talk to anybody else about how much they're making. You know the oh, really, really. You it, it, speaking from experience now? No, I'm that, saying cause that, that was because that wasn't the situation back then. Well, that wasn't not, the situation I was faced with. It certainly wasn't with guys like Hall and Nash. But in the old school era, you sort of kept what you were getting paid close to the vest because you didn't want to upset the apple cart. Because there's no, really no good comes from talking about it. I mean. If you make more or you make less than your friend, either way, there are hurt feelings. So I've always been told that back in the day, guys made it a point to try to not to discuss it because 
almost no good comes from it. Yeah, yes. that's that that's that, that may have been what you were told. Let, let me have been told. Let me tell you what what I actually had to deal with. What I actually had to deal with was the exact opposite. The exact opposite. You mean an example of two guys who took I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names. And not because I'm, you know, I I I'm just not going to name names. But there were it was, and I'm not talking about Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Sure. X-Pac and anybody else, okay, that, that came in later because that became even a bigger issue later on. And I was faced with even more of that. But there was a huge – in addition to the you know, the fact that Bill Watts had burned the company almost to the ground and they were ready to pull the plug and WCW was on its last breath when they handed me the keys and said, okay, you kid, you do it because nobody else wanted it, quite frankly, and I was too stupid to know better. Um Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The, the morale in that company, and I was one of them. I was, I was a talent. I wasn't in management when Watts was there or when Heard was there. I was just, I was, I was not one of the boys. I wasn't a wrestler, but as an announcer, I was, I was a talent. And I heard every syllable of it. I listened to all of it. I listen to guys talking about their freaking money back in the dressing rooms. So don't tell me what the, you've been told. I'll tell you what I heard and what I dealt with later on. It's just not true. It escalated. It became even more of a problem. But I knew, especially in 94, in 95, and without question in 96, now because I'm bringing in the Halls and the Nashes, and I'm bringing in more guys, I was even more sensitive to parody and, and keeping things at least on a level, level playing field because I didn't want the kind of chaos and, and horrible attitude that I had to experience when I was a talent in a locker room. It's exactly what I was trying to avoid. So I'm sorry. I just don't, I don't buy the bullshit. Not gonna not going to accept it. It's not true. I listened to it when I was a talent. All right, let's uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about the proposed feud that you saw and you made in your pitch. I've always been fascinated around these initial conversations that a quote unquote Booker 
uh, whoever's running the company has what, what, what year was that this what would have been 1996 it? of course chris made his debut in august august 26th um on nitro and that's when we first see him so it would have happened probably summer of 96 I, I guess you know what i'm what i'm curious about is because this is the dream gig for so many guys and chris even remarks about how easy it was you know you saw him in person and said hey call my secretary we're going to get you to atlanta and try to figure okay let's out. again let's perspective sure yeah, it was easy for him because I'd already made up my mind. I didn't need to, to to play games and 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 make him work for it. I didn't. I'd already seen. I'd already. He'd been endorsed by everybody that I had talked to. I talked to Masa Saito on a regular basis. Masa was excited about me bringing him over because Masa felt that he could. And when I say Masa, I mean Masa and Brad Ringens, um, who was the American agent at the time and a very close friend of mine that I grew up with in high school. Um, you know, they were all excited about Chris. So it wasn't like I had to sit. And by the way, I didn't wear my leather jacket to the office, just for the record. I did wear jeans and um, occasionally I wore cowboy boots. But unless it was like January and I was on my motorcycle, I didn't wear a leather jacket to the office. It sounds good though, right? Because that's what I wore on camera. <laughs> kind of see what, kind of see what's going on there. But hey, it's a book. You got to write. It's got to be entertaining. Got to get yourself over. I get it. But there, yeah, it was easy for Chris. Well, he'd been put, he'd been put over by everybody whom I respected. I saw him in in L.A. And yeah, he came in. I had a pretty good idea what I wanted to do with him. I didn't need to waste an hour playing games. And what you're so excited to bring him in for? Is a feud with Brad Armstrong. Yeah, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. Okay. Um, I'm not buying it. Brad, Brad, that's, I brought him in to work with Chris and Dean and Eddie in the cruiserweight division. I wanted to work him into that role. I wasn't going to like launch him right into the middle of it. Not a lot of people. You know, I know Chris is not going to want to hear that. And yes, he worked in ECW and you know maybe 300,000 people watched that on TSN or whatever the cable station was that nobody watched. Uh, or on their syndicated show that nobody could find. Um, yeah, he, he worked there. But our audience, our four or five million people, didn't know who he was. So it takes a while to expose a guy and build a guy. But the role that I wanted him for, and I told him this, was you know in, that, in the serious mix of the Cruiserweight division. Let's talk about the, the first match. He, uh, starts by working Mr. JB, uh, not Mr. JBL, Mr. JL, which is Jerry Lynn. And that taping happens on August 20th. Uh, it's a Saturday night taping, of course. And, and the assistant booker is here. And of course we're talking about everybody's favorite Terry Taylor. And he says that Terry Taylor comes to him and says that, you know, they want you to be a baby face. And Jericho would write that he feels like this sort of dooms him from the start because he thinks you were a little bit behind the curve compared to like an ECW at the time. Oh, yeah, I was really behind the curve. That fucking NWO thing just wasn't working at all. I just did not have a feel for shit. But go ahead. He says that you you were booking him as a nameless, faceless baby face in that there were lots of good guys or bad guys. There weren't as many shades of gray, especially when it came to the underneath guys. So he goes out, has a match with uh, Mr. JL, and he says, the match went over like a dump in church. It was a horrible Red Reels debut, and everyone knew it, except me. The chastising began the minute I walked through the curtain when Orndorff, who was waiting for me, said, 
damn it, boy, you need a fancy ring robe with <laughs> ring robe with gems and sequins on it. And he says, when he saw Terry Taylor, he says, wow, did that ever suck? Was that your first match ever? It was terrible. What were you trying to accomplish? And Jericho allegedly says, since I was winning the match, I wanted to make JL look good in the process. And Terry quipped that match wasn't for him. It was for you to show what you can do. And from the look of things, you can't do much. I don't even know if we can show what you did on TV. Is this something that Terry Taylor was tasked with to sort of break them in on Saturday night? What was the feedback you got about this? Your response to this overall debut with WCW from Jericho's book. You know, I, I don't remember his first match. <clears throat> There's no way I could. Right. It was just not fucking possible. Um, and unless we wanted to sit down and watch the show together, um, it, it would be hard for me to express an opinion. So I'll, I'll just have to take what he says. Although, you know, I think the, the whole idea of Eric being a little bit behind the curve in terms of what was really going on, given the fact that we, that, that I single-handedly at that point with the NWO turned the, did the entire fucking business upside down. And we're still feeling that today. So I think that's an indication of the perspective from which Chris Jericho was writing this book. Just keep that in mind. Um, now that being said, just reminding the audience. I'll take Chris's version of his first match at face value. I could hear Terry Taylor responding like that. Terry was, you know, Terry came up with Bill Watts. He, you know, he, he was that older school guy and Terry Taylor, Terry Taylor had like two sides to him. You know, he, he could be the most likable, charming, just great guy to be around. And he could be a just a nuclear prick, and it all depended, you know. And I think, you know, and I didn't hear Terry talk to talent a lot, you know. Again, he was he was the agent. He was working for Kevin Sullivan, who was the booker at the time, right? I I didn't get in the middle of a lot of that, so I didn't hear Terry talk to talent. I heard Terry talk to me, but of course, when he talked to me, he talked much differently, right. of course, than he, would, than he would when he talked to talent. So, But I'll, I'll take Chris's version of that because, I, A, I don't remember it. I wasn't there to, to remember it or not remember it. I wasn't present. I guess it could be accurate. It's funny because when he runs into Chris Benoit the very next day, Benoit gets all over him and says something like, what the fuck happened in Dalton? Terry told me that you stunk the joint out and the word going around is that you aren't any good. And he continued, you have to dress nicer too. You're wearing shorts and a tank top. You look like a slob. This is the big leagues act like it. Now this is years before the dress code had been instituted, but it is sort of locker room etiquette, at least from Chris Benoit's standpoint, whether conversations from you or from other guys about how to sort of carry yourself backstage or in real life. Or is that not something that was even remotely on your radar at the time? It wasn't on my radar. I think it probably was Chris's. Chris was very unique in that respect. I think Chris Benoit had his own <clears throat> kind of ethical moral code when it came to the way he conducted himself, you know, when he was in the building. Um, I could, you know, thinking back, could I could I hear Chris Benoit saying that to, to Chris Jericho? Absolutely. Because he was kind of – Chris Benoit was the – 
he was the leader of that group. He was a silent leader, but he was the he was the rock of Gibraltar of that group. Dean, Eddie, Chris, Jericho. Um, so I could I could see that, but from my perspective, no. I mean, that's just no. I, I was I, I, I was not a big dress code guy. He wrote about his first match on Nitro, which is when most of us saw him for the first time. He's working with Alex Wright. And when he finds out he's working with Alex Wright, he also learns he's got eight minutes. And that includes the entrances. And this is going to be his primetime national television debut. And he's got all these great ideas. And he takes them and sort of runs down this list of things he wants to do in the match with Alex Wright. And Alex allegedly says something like, out of the ten things you want to do, pick your best three because that's all we're going to have time for. And he sort of quipped in his book, he was now Dick Murdoch and I was the Japanese young boy. He wasn't being a jerk, just a realist. I think a lot of times people, you know, especially fans sort of overlook the time constraints of television, because I know from, from hanging around enough that whenever you guys allocate, Hey, here's this match, you've got this many minutes that includes the entrance and whatever the little post angle is going to be. So if there is something that's supposed to happen after the match, that eight minutes includes all of that. And by the time you get both guys to the ring, whatever there is post, if there is anything and the actual match, eight minutes is probably more like four and a half, five. Talk us through, you know, these, the, the, the psychology and we're debuting a guy. We're going to go to a no contest. We're only going to give him a few minutes and we're going to put him with Alex, Wright. Not saying that anything of that is wrong. Just trying to understand why you think, okay, this is the way to do it. I can't, you know, I'm going to answer it two ways. Sure. Obviously, I, I don't, you know, I don't have the format from that particular show. I don't know what else was going on on that show. I don't know how much time we allocated to other things on that show that may have been more important or maybe not. I don't know. There's too many things I don't know to say, you know, this is why eight minutes was enough. You know, if we want to sit down and look at the format for that show, I could probably do a better job of answering why he got eight minutes. But generally speaking, you know, your eight to 12 minutes was pretty standard. And the idea was you expose that talent, you get them out there on television, you give the, the, the announcers a chance to put them over, to establish them, to tell their backstory, to kind of build that character or that piece of talent so that in the weeks or months to come, you're building that talent on a foundation. So yeah, I can see how a guy like Chris and Chris is always, you know, looking back at it now, I didn't, you know, recognize it as much, you know, when we were in the middle of it all, but Chris is always a guy that has, you know, when he steps into a room or when he steps into the ring, um, he's got a whole lot of big ideas for himself. And right. this was one of the reasons why he is where he is today. I, I admire it. I'm not knocking it. But a lot of times when you're a young talent, you may think that you deserve a lot more time to do a lot more great stuff than you're going to get. And it's just the nature of the beast. It's, it, it is today. It's always been that way. You know, it's different in a house show. But when you're, when you're producing a television show and you've got, you know, in a, in a, in a two-hour show, you've got 12 matches. You've got, you know, 10 commercial breaks. You've got magazines to sell, pay-per-views to sell. You've got backstage interviews and promos that you need to use to glue the, all the stories together. You've got a whole lot of business to take care of outside of what happens in the ring that, you know, it's not 
it wasn't then. It probably still isn't to this day uncommon for talent to get pissed off when they find out they've only got six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes, or 12 minutes even for a match because they want to do more. They know what they're capable of and they want to do it. And it's a constant struggle. So one of the things that Jericho has sort of been critical of, and this probably you know, has him blaming himself as well. He says he didn't really have a character in this early run here in WCW. He's just this white meat baby face. And you sort of see him come into the ring and he's sort of yelling to the fans. Come on. Yeah. I mean, just really out of place. What the fuck is this lame baby face? And the finish to this debut match on nitro is sort of the same deal. He's going to be in a, in a count out win situation over Alex, Wright, But he doesn't want to win that way. He, th- he does a promo with Mean Gene saying, you know, the NWO may take a win like that, but not me. And he says in hindsight, it was really an eight minutes of self-burial because he's this goody two-shoes that really is pretty fucking lame. When a guy like this is debuting, is there a real conversation? We've detailed the money. Is there a real conversation for, here's the type of character I want you to have. Here's the fire I want you to have. Or is, you know, his presentation, his, his gear, his mannerisms, his promo style, is that all sort of left up to him for a guy like Jericho here? It's a little bit of both. Again, I brought him in my, my mandate to Kevin and into Terry, Kevin Sullivan and Terry Taylor was, I wanted Chris Jericho to come in. I want him to be an important part of the cruiserweight division. That was my input, right? The. The cruiserweight division, if you go back and look at it, you know, Chris Benoit didn't have a gimmick. Dean Malenko didn't have a gimmick. Right. Eddie Guerrero, when we brought him in, didn't have a gimmick. You know, the, the, you know, the Mexicans did because they were Mexican and they brought their culture with them, which was different than what we did here in the States. But the, the core guys, you know, we, we were kind of gimmick free at that moment. You know, the NWO, you know, we used their real names. They didn't have robes and flashing lights and all of the gaga that had been so commonplace, you know, in the decades prior to that, that's what I was getting away from. So no, it's, we didn't have, we didn't have a crew of people like we did with Glacier, for example, sit down and say, okay, this is what we want him to look like. And we want him to come out looking like Elvis, only kind of a badass. And we want him to set puppies on fire and stomp them out on the way to the ring because he's just that mean of a person. No, we didn't do that. It was partially up to him to get himself over and to find his character, much like Bill Goldberg did, much like a lot of people did. Maybe not a lot. Maybe the ones that just got over. We, you know, Diamond Dallas Page, I stripped him of his gimmicks. He didn't get over until we got rid of all of his gimmicks. He was a walking gimmick fucking festival, for God's sake. He looked like a walking, talking flea market when he came to the ring. And it wasn't until we pulled all of that stuff off of him and made him just a blue-collar guy, then he got over. So the prevailing tone and tenor, at least from my point of view, was not to have a guy come in with, with some kind of – you know, pre-made, you know, manufactured, just add water type of character. A lot of it was feeling it out. But again, keep this in mind. I brought him in to be in the cruiserweight division. None of the core guys in the cruiserweight division had gimmicks. They performed. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Well, let's talk about when they did perform. It's his pay-per-view debut here, September 15th, 1996 at Fall Brawl. He's working with Benoit, and Benoit pins him in 14 minutes and 36 seconds. Meltzer calls it the best match on the card. He gives it four stars, super high praise. And Jericho would write of the match that they really hoped to have a Jacob-style match where they had you know, years prior in New Japan, but Kevin Sullivan sort of had other plans, and he wanted 80% of the offense to be for Benoit. They sort of go into business for themselves and do almost a 50, 50 style match. And afterwards, you know, Kevin sort of takes them to task for that and says, Hey, it was a good match. However, you got in way too much offense and this sort of, I don't know, demoralizes Chris a little bit because he even writes in the book, was I supposed to be the next Shawn Michaels or the next Barry Horowitz? Do you remember the fall brawl match at all? I mean, I know that, you know, we have a, a fun thing we say here on the show. I don't recall. But do you, does this match stick out to you as one being particularly good or indifferent? Because the crowd didn't really get into it, and they didn't enjoy it nearly as much as a Meltzer did. So I'm curious, you know, as a promoter, are you really digging the high-quality wrestling, or if the fans thought it was shitty, then fuck it? No, I liked it. And I, do, I remember it vaguely because that was really the first time. And again, I wanted to build Chris and I, I really wanted him to be a part of it. I'm going to keep saying it probably until the next show, but I wanted him to be a part of that core cruiserweight division. And that was really the first time that I got a chance to see what he was really capable of with a guy in Chris Benoit, who I had a tremendous amount of respect for as a talent. So to me, from what I remember, I was excited about it, not because of the mass necessarily or the crowd reaction, because I didn't live or die by one crowd reaction i but i did like what i saw and it fit the formula that i had laid out in detail to dean and eddie and chris a year in advance before chris jericho even got there it fit what i was looking for well it doesn't fit what everybody's looking for he writes in his book that scott hall even approaches him and says Listen, you guys are going way too long and doing too much stuff during your matches. Nobody's paying a dime to see you, so you shouldn't be out there for 20 minutes. Do a short match and hit the showers. And he says Benoit was fired up about this and says it's not his place to say that. He's just pissed off because he's lazy and he wants us all to be lazy too. Don't listen to him. Chat me up. What do you make of of Scott Hall's comments here? I wasn't there. I don't know if they're true or not. I will take Chris's word for it because it sounds like something Chris would have said, or excuse me, Scott would have said, especially at that time. But again, let's put this into a broader context. There were a lot of guys, including Hulk Hogan, who didn't really like the cruiserweight division. As the cruiserweight division started getting more and more over, at first nobody cared. It's like, ah, oh, they're bringing in a bunch of smaller guys. Great. 
they're just flying around the ring. They're not telling any stories because the, you know, the the prevailing logic and and the formula that had been so successful for decades was big stars, big characters, kind of doing the same kind of thing that they'd been doing for years. My position was no. We have a three-hour show. We can't have everybody doing the same thing, presenting the same type of match. Ergo, the cruiserweight division. Once the cruiserweight division started getting over, right, and the audience started reacting to it, guys like Scott Hall, as great as Scott was at that time, and Hulk and Randy and Lex and a lot of other guys didn't necessarily like the fact that those guys were going out there and putting on, from an athletic point of view, a match that none of them were capable of even coming close to. And it was a problem. So when I say I can imagine Scott saying that, it wasn't just because Scott was a dick, but I think because, and he might have been at that moment, depending on what he was doing at that time, but I can also say that it sounds a lot like some of the logic or the philosophy that a lot of the established guys that came on in the main events on those Nitro shows, essentially following some of the Cruiserweight shit, they didn't like following it <laughs> once they started getting over. So I, I can see it. Let's talk about his next pay-per-view. He's going to work Halloween Havoc, and this goes down at MGM Grand in Las Vegas. It's a huge house. You guys are really hitting your stride here. And he loses to six here in nine minutes and 49 seconds. And there is a situation here where Nick Patrick is trying to get over as essentially a heel referee. And that sort of becomes a critical part of the storyline here in the match. Meltzer still dug it though. He gave a three and a quarter star, but the storyline is Patrick does a fast count here. He was, you know, maybe a year and change early on that. Uh, anyway, coming out of this, they're going to book. Got to make those smart ass comments. Don't you just got to go there. He, uh, he gets put into a fucking angle with Nick Patrick. And that's just amazing to me that you've got this superstar talent that you're talking about, that you're putting over like crazy here that you see, but as he heads to world war three, 1996, he's on the pay-per-view again, roll title on that three in a row, but he's working with fucking Nick Patrick who booked this shit, man. I'm going to eat that one because it was the cruiserweight division. It was the NWO and I could have easily overridden that. And clearly I didn't. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to let that fucking mule kick me right in the head. I'm going to take it. (laughs) Well, you need to take it. If you're at home and you'd like to see this, please do. It's Nick Patrick, the fucking referee working a match with Chris Jericho for eight minutes, it's World War Three, nineteen ninety six. It's on the WWE Network. It's pretty ridiculous. You know, here we go. We start to cruise. You know, through the rest of the year, and I guess it's worth mentioning. He got a win over Masahiro Chono in December. It was by DQ, but whatever. He works with Benoit and Nitro. Benoit beats him. He also has a match where he wins with Bobby Eaton. Uh, he's had a lot of, of of names here that he got wins over and worked with, including you know a win over Buff Bagwell in October. So. It's not all bad. I'm not painting it that way, but the idea of working with a referee does just sort of tickle me. Chat me up about new Japan, because there's, there's talk that you guys are, are trying to further that of course, with Masahiro Chono and a lot of those guys, and they're really high on Chris Benoit and part of the agreement or so it seems is that he's going to be able to sort of bounce back and forth. Is that something that Brad Riggins puts together? 
who's who, who, who's he? He is Chris Jericho. No, none of the talent that I had under contract had the ability just to go over to Japan whenever they wanted. Oh, no, I'm not saying nope. that. I'm saying, you know, the, Brad calls him and says, hey, we're going to have you debut as the, the evil super liger in front of 65,000 people at the Tokyo Dome. And allegedly this call happens when there is a working agreement with WCW. So he gets a tape measure, gives him the measurements, and they're supposed to, like, make a version of Liger's famous bodysuit. Do you remember how that came to be, came together? Or any of that conversation happens? Well, I wasn't I wasn't a part of that conversation, and I can't testify <laughs> to facts entered as evidence that aren't really facts or evidence at this point. Allegedly, this is Chris's recollection. But let me let me tell you my version of the working relationship. It's not a version; it's the facts. Um, Sonny Ono, we could bring in as a witness <laughs> to testify. The the working relationship that I had with New Japan was that if they wanted particular talent, whether right. it was Chris Jericho or anybody else, Brad would contact me. I would look at our schedule and what we had going on and determine before the talent was ever advised, I would determine whether or not it was possible given our situation. And if it was, then Brad could reach out to the talent and start making arrangements. Or I may contact the talent and say, hey, reach out to Brad, depending on who it was. Um, that was that was protocol. It was never protocol where Brad Ringens would pick up the phone and contact any of the talent that I had under contract and say, hey, here's what we're going to do. Go get fitted for some shit, and we're bringing you over for an event, and oh, I'll tell Eric later on. That's oh, not no, how it no. works. I wasn't insinuating that. I mean, clearly there's a working relationship. I was just curious how he wound up working their super show on January 4th at the Tokyo Dome. He's working a super liger. Of course, that's actually Chris Jericho. He gets a win over Koji Kanemoto, but as was going around a lot during this time, he really failed to impress them. It's not exactly what they're hoping for. He does have a couple of botches, and people are not really happy with this. Um, Mark Madden even said on the WCW hotline, Chris Jericho stinks in his first appearance as super liger. Allegedly when he gets to the locker room, uh, some of the new Japan brass say, Hey, we want to hang on to that costume for safekeeping, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. And, and I just, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the new Japan relationship, but you know, we'll take a sidebar cause you're clearly fired up about stuff. And I, no, I, no, no, no. I was just trying to put it in again. The way the question came across to me is like Brad Ringens called him up one day and said, hey, go get fitted for a costume. We're going to book you. That just wasn't protocol. And I was trying because I know you wanted to talk about the relationship, how the relationship worked, what the protocol was. And look, to this day, I still stay in touch with uh, Masachono and his wife. Um, Not Masachono, I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, God. I got my Japanese names mixed up. Masasaido. I'm still in t- I still stay in touch with them. Um, Baijo son, Mr. Baijo, who was the business side of New Japan when I was doing business there, um, died about a year ago, and I was asked by the family to to write a letter that they wanted to post next to his. Um, I don't want to say it was a grave because they don't. He's a Buddhist; and they don't have a grave, but they have a memorial, and they want it because he valued his relationship with WCW and myself and my family. He wanted their family; his family wanted me to write something. So I'm still very close to some of those people. 
And I cherish that relationship. It was one of the highlights of my career, to be quite honest with you. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I just want to talk about it accurately. Well, I mean, I guess what I was asking is, let's talk about the costume. Do they say, hey, we want to bring one of your guys over and make them a version of one of our characters? It, I mean, to me, it feels like, from a WCW standpoint, how the fuck are we winning with that? I wasn't going to tell them how to book no, that see that's that was one of the mistakes that was made prior to me coming to WCW. And let's talk about because Chris was an important part of my relationship with New Japan, not initially, but but eventually. And as again, as I said early on when we started this, you know, New Japan came to me through Brad um, and Masa Saido because I talked to Masa a lot. Um, they liked Jericho. They had seen Jericho over in, in Japan. They knew of Chris Jericho well before I did. Just, it's the same reason Chris Benoit ended up in, and Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko ended up in WCW. It wasn't because I saw them and decided they needed to be here. I knew I wanted cruiserweight division, but it was really Masa Saido and Brad Ringens who said, okay, we're using Chris Benoit's black cat. I think was it was a Chris or Eddie. One of them was the black cat kind of working under a hood. Um, but they were using Dean and Chris and Eddie, and it was, they're the ones that said, look, if you want a cruiserweight division, these are the guys you want to use because we can also use them. And now you've got two companies building them. But the last thing that I would have done was made the same mistake guys like Bill Watts had made before me, which is to swerve them and curve them and, and fuck with their creative. I didn't do that. If they said they wanted to book somebody, my talent had to go over there just like they would anywhere else and do what they were asked to do and be whatever character they were asked to be. I wasn't worried about them getting buried on Japanese television because guess what? In 95 and 96 and 97, nobody here watched Japanese television except for, you know, Dave Meltzer. There you go. The name you were looking for is Black Tiger. That's who Eddie Guerrero portrayed over there. Uh, Black what, Tiger. There, there was a go. Black Cat, but not Eddie Guerrero. And Chris Benoit was Wild Pegasus. So everybody sort of had interesting characters. But Super Liger is what they went with for Jericho. Let's talk about the best pay-per-view of all time. Sold out, 1997. We've got Moss. Yeah, got me some fat women. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. It might not be by the time you hear this, but it will be soon. Let's keep it going. Let's talk about the best pay-per-view of all time. January 25th, 1997. It's NWO sold out. Masahiro Chono pins Chris Jericho after 11 minutes. It gets two stars. You know, I'm sure we're going to talk about this pay-per-view at some point in the future. Masahiro Chono and Jericho. Why did that make sense here? Give that to me again. I'm trying to visualize it. I'm trying to trying to remember that moment. Masahiro Chono pinned Chris Jericho in 11 minutes after a Yakuza kick. And of course, Nick Patrick is, um, the referee and that's the storyline. I'm sure we're going for, it gets two stars. What'd you think about the pairing of Masahiro Chono and Chris Jericho? Why did that make sense? I asked that specifically because we've sort of insinuated or just flat out said Jericho is here to be a cruiserweight star. Masahiro Chono, anything but a cruiserweight yeah but he, uh, chris also was doing double duty over in japan and at that time the new japan really wanted an nwo presence and they wanted a storyline that would extend from the u.s and build over to new japan i can only guess because it would be guessing 
without a little bit more information in terms of timing and everything, um, my guess is it was probably done to help build something for Japan that would extend from the U.S. and from the NWO um, over there. I'm glad That'd you be say that guess. because the plan, at least from what Chris understood, was that New Japan, specifically Black Cat, wanted to bring him over for the next tour. And it's going to be a few weeks off of the WCW schedule and on to the New Japan schedule. And even though he's practically begging for it, the request is denied. And Terry Taylor says something like absence makes the heart grow fonder and they'll just want you more next time. And allegedly they tried to cheer him up with some good news. You're going to be the new cruiserweight champion. And Chris wrote, instead of happy, happy, joy, joy, my heart sank cruiserweight cruiserweight was a dirty word in WCW, a derogatory term. The belt meant as much as a belt from JC Penny. If I'd been given a choice. I would have just gone back to Japan, but alas, there was no choice. What, what do you think of his response of being disappointed? He couldn't go to new Japan and that the cruiserweight title was really the equivalent of a JC penny belt, man. <clears throat> I, I I'm surprised to hear him say that. And look, he felt the way he felt. I can't get into his head right. back in 1996 or 97 or whenever this was and comment on how he felt it's disappointing that he would write that because that cruiserweight division to this day, it was then he may not have felt that way. Um, and here's, here's, and this isn't really specific to Chris, although it, it, it is to a degree, you know, because it was an issue later on with Chris as it was with a lot of guys. When I first created that cruiserweight division, when I first sat down with, with Benoit and Malenko and Guerrero and brought in you know, Chris Jericho and, and talked about the division and what my vision was it for, those guys were as excited as they could be because it was the first really big opportunity they had and the first time that they were ever consistently on a major television platform where they could get themselves over. That's a fact. Nobody can go back and deny it, twist it, or turn it. They were excited about that. And they were thrilled to death to be able to go out there and have the kind of matches that I allowed them to have to showcase their athleticism and their abilities. And that cruiserweight division got over, and it's still over to this day. When I go to autograph signings or when I'm out you know, in, 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 in and amongst wrestling fans – you know, naturally they want to talk about the NWO and a couple other things that are obvious, but almost always, if I'm talking to them for five or 10 minutes, it comes back to that cruiserweight division. And that cruiserweight division is what allowed Chris Jer- Jericho to get over. We built that division. We built it in a way that to this day, the WWE can't figure out how to create that much excitement for that division as I did and we did as a team. It's never been done before, and it's probably never going to be done, done again. So to hear Chris, who got really his opportunity to, to move on and, and to springboard into WWE as a result of that and, and have that kind of a bad taste in his mouth about it is, you know, i, I got to be honest, I'm disappointed. It's, it's like, he, look, he feels the way he feels. Or maybe he just wrote what he felt he needed to write to make the book interesting. I don't know. But I, I don't regret how I built a cruiserweight division. Could I have done better? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm sure I could have, uh, especially with 2020 hindsight. But I just don't know of anybody that I talk to that looks back at that cruiserweight division at that time and goes, oh, man, that sucked. Do well, you? 
No, I loved it. It was what made WCW so much fun for me. Let's talk about uh, Super Brawl 7. It goes down February 23rd in San Francisco. It's the next big pay-per-view for Jericho after sold out. He's working with Eddie Guerrero here for the U.S. title. Eddie gets the win in 12 minutes and two seconds. And Meltzer liked the match, giving it three and a quarter stars. But he wrote, the fans live treated this match like an intermission. People were leaving once it got started, chanting boring, even though they were doing great moves and generally not paying attention, which killed what could have been the best match on the show. This sort of feels like a bit of a theme here in Jericho's early run where the fans just aren't into it. Do you think it's the babyface character? I mean, it's certainly not the action. Or at this point, is the NWO just so fucking hot it dwarfs everything else? I think it's a combination of the two. You know, looking back at it now and, and especially the way you're laying it out here and just trying to visualize what was going on, you know, at that time overall. I, I think it was two things. I think and maybe one of the ways I could have made the night the, the cruiserweight division and, and, and some of the the matches that Chris is referring to now mean more is if I didn't rely so much on the pure athleticism of them and and built in more of a story. Than I did, you know, we had story, there was reasons for it. There were promos that, you know, supported these matches and videos and all kinds. It's not like we just threw the shit up against the wall and hope it stuck. I'm not suggesting that was the case, but we didn't have as much depth of story as we did in the NWL because that was the focus of the company at that time. So I think it's fair to say that the audience probably didn't react not fair, it's probably accurate to say they didn't react the way a performer like Chris would want them to to perform given what they were doing, which was exceptional. And it would be disappointing, and I understand that. And it was probably because there just wasn't quite enough story there. And that was, again, to not to be redundant, but I wasn't relying on story for the cruiserweights. It's probably a little bit like some of the stuff that we see today, 20-some-odd um, years later, which is really just about the athleticism and not so much about the characters in the story. It happens to be the hottest shit going right now, but it, it, it was probably a little bit of that back then too. And the audience just wasn't quite into it, especially compared to the massive success, especially at that time that we had in the NWL. That's really all they wanted to see. And, and, and you know, I don't think if, I think if you go back and look and while, you know, now, especially, you know, fans, again, you know, autograph signings, whatever, Comic-Cons, wherever you go, where there's wrestling fans, and they, they look back now at the Cruiserweight division, and sure, now they look back and like, oh, wow, that was the greatest thing at, the, at that time. But at that time, only a smaller percentage of the audience really dug it. It took a while for the the legacy, I guess, if you will, or the yeah, legacy is the only word I can think of of the cruiserweight division before people finally realized just how good it was. But in the moment, it didn't get the kind of crowd reactions that some of the other stuff got. Well, let's talk about you know what he's doing on TV the rest of the time. We did sort of gloss over that. He's getting wins over Craig Pittman, Alex Wright, even Jeff Jarrett, and he has matches on Nitro with Steve Regal. Picks up a win there. Scotty Riggs, Malenko beats him to retain the U S title. He loses to Ming and then he's off for a couple of weeks to new Japan and he does the super juniors tournament. Um, so there's the sort of return that you had sort of alluded to. He comes back on June 9th and he loses to Alex, Wright. 
Uh, and then Ultima Dragon beats him. He finally gets a win back on uh, Alex Wright on June 23rd. I want to mention this show because this is something you guys were sort of trying here. June 28th, it's Inglewood, California. Six would beat Rey Mysterio to retain the Cruiserweight title. And Jericho essentially challenged the winner beforehand. And he comes down and pins six in just 32 seconds. And Meltzer would write at the time that Chris was booed out of the building. And it has been something that you guys were sort of trying at the time where you're doing these super shows in major markets. And you even flirted with the idea and eventually did put the audio for shows like this on essentially internet pay-per-view back in the original days of podcasting. You might say they weren't streaming it from a video standpoint, but they were the audio. How does all of that come together? And what do you remember about this non-televised title change here in Los Angeles? God, thanks for asking the question that I just can't really fill in the blanks on. Sure. I don't remember much of it, bro. I just don't. There's your second bro of the day. Do you want to push ah, yourself? Damn it! <laughs> damn it! God! <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Um, he's the cruiserweight champion now, just as promised here. He gets a, a quick win and, uh, People aren't really excited about it in the building, but he does have good matches afterwards. I know it's not popular, but I was a super fan of Jericho by this point. Uh, his matches were outstanding. The baby face stuff still kind of sucks, but once the bell rings, you're in for a treat. He gets a win over Juventud Guerrera and, uh, Ultimo dragon. I mean, lots of fun stuff that you guys are putting together for him here. The, the match with Ultimo dragon is one of the more underrated ones. It's bash at the beach, 1997. I've always been a bit of an Ultimo Dragon mark. I can't recommend this enough. If you're looking for something fun to watch this week, go watch Bash at the Beach 97 and just find this Ultimo Dragon Chris Jericho match. They go nearly 13 minutes. Jericho's going to retain. Meltzer fucking loved it. Four and a quarter stars. Maybe his highest rated match of the year at that point. What'd you think of uh, the pairing of Ultimo Dragon and Chris Jericho? Why did it work? We haven't talked about Ultimo Dragon here on the show very much. I loved Ultimate Dragon. Sonny, Sonny Ono was instrumental in in bringing him in and still works with him to this day. Um, Ultimo was working in Mexico quite a bit. He was working in Japan. Just one of the most – God, he was easy to work with, professional, and amazing athlete in the ring. And I really saw, in my mind at least, um, I saw a tremendous upside with him because, again, he brought – you know, he brought that that Japanese mystique and that diversity to the roster, and he could go. And he was so easy to work with. Just, God, I don't think I've ever worked with more of a gentleman when it comes to talent. I mean, he was just amazing to work with and, and amazing to watch in the ring. How was his English? I'm not asking that to be funny. You said he was an amazing talent to work with and, you know, such a gentleman. What was the communication like with him? I didn't have any trouble. His English was pretty good. I mean, you know, we couldn't sit down and discuss, you know, the theory of evolution. Right. But, you know, when it came to, you know, talking, laying out a match or talking about a story or, you know, scheduling something in the future or going out and having dinner, um, I, I saw him. God, when did I see him? About a year ago, I had dinner with him um, and I had no trouble um, communicating with him. 
Uh, not too long after this, uh, a couple of weeks, in fact, Jericho loses the cruiserweight title to Alex Wright. Um, at this point, what was the strategy behind who's champion of the cruiserweight title? Is there any sort of long-term plan or is it very much, Hey, they won't see this coming. I mean, are you guys trying to sort of hang your hat on the guys? Here's who we're building the division around or what's the rhyme or reason by which the intercontinental, not intercontinental. Listen to me. The cruiserweight title changes hands. Yeah, I can't, I I, I can't go back and try to rationalize a strategy or even recall a strategy. Um, again, I'd have to look at in context, everything we were doing at that time. Um, we're talking about one single match and one moment in a title change. It's just hard to put it into to the right perspective. I would say generally, if someone put a gun to my head and said, answer the fucking question, or I'm going to pull the trigger. I would say the general rule was we were trying to do the unexpected. One of the things that was core to the success of Nitro um, from the very beginning was to do the unexpected, um, to surprise the audience and to be as unpredictable as possible. So if I had to guess, I would imagine that that was probably at the core of that decision, but a, I'm not sure I made it and B, whoever did make it. I'm not sure if that was really it or not. You know, Alex was a guy, it's easy to make fun of Alex right now. But Alex was a guy that Dusty Rhodes was high on. Alex was a guy that your future father-in-law was extremely high on. These are guys that were booking before me, before I had any influence in booking. I didn't even want to go near the room. They were high on Alex Wright. Now, it's easy to look back now, 20 years later, and go, what the hell were you thinking? But in that moment, Alex was not a guy that you know people looked at and went, oh, my God, what a clown. He may have been put you know, in – silly positions that wasn't his choice or decision in terms of the way we had him go out there and, you know, perform like a dick dancer, but that wasn't him. He was a hell of an athlete with a great look, you know, and if you ever talk to Rick about, you know, Alex, when Alex first came in, uh, and while Rick was booking, they were very high on, on Alex. So again, context, yeah, maybe looking back at it now, and I'm sure perhaps when Chris was writing his book, he may have felt like, you know, wasn't really doing much for him. But at the time, there were a lot of people that were high on Alex. You know, there's lots of rumor and innuendo around Alex Wright and that perhaps someone who had a little bit of power in the company essentially had a crush on him. And that's the reason he was booked and got this position. Oh, my boy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that because as silly as it sounds, you know, it is sort of the thing that we hear a lot that Jim Barnett was for lack of a better word, sweet on Alex, Wright. And I don't know. Can you speak to that at all? I don't think I was really involved in bringing out. I mean, that was pretty early, right? Right. It had to be 92, 93. No, it wasn't quite that early, but I mean, he was signed when you were there, but it's still probably someone that would have maybe flown under your radar a little bit. I mean, from my understanding, yeah, but I don't think, I don't think I signed him. That's my point. He came in in 94. I don't, I still don't think I signed him. That might've been a dusty decision. It might've been somebody working with dusty. Um, you know, it was dusty. Who was booking? It was dusty, Kevin and Jim Ross were kind of the guys that were, writing TV at the time and, and we're dealing with talent. Um, I didn't really 
control that entire process. I may have a 94. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and really dig into that because I, to me, you know, just talking about it now, it seemed like Alex was there before I had a lot of control. Maybe I was the executive producer back then, which means I had a lot of control over television and where we shot it, how we shot it. But I didn't really get too heavily involved or, or I should say singularly in control of the talent side of things until late 94, maybe 95. The when, when when Bob Dew left, whenever that is, Google it. When Bob Dew left is when I basically took over control of everything. Up until that point, I had everything to do with the television side, but I had nothing to do with the live events and the talent side. When I first became executive producer, Ole Anderson had control of that. He and Bob Dew. That was not part of my budget. Yeah, I mean you're you know, you're promoted from executive producer to executive vice president in 94. So that makes sense. Um, it is sort of interesting that, well, we'll talk about that another time. Let's talk about the match. Let's talk about road wild 1997. Alex Wright gets a a pinfall win here, uh, over Chris Jericho, 13 minutes and three seconds. I can't wait for us to talk about, uh, road wild in the future. Uh, let's just keep rolling for now. Alex Wright is, um, working with him a lot on the, the loops. And he even drops the title back to Chris on a Saturday night taping. So they're sort of bouncing the the title around a little bit. Let's get to, uh, August 21st. It's clash of the champions 35. And how about this one? Jericho and Guerrero working together and Jericho gets a pinfall win, which is pretty outstanding for Jericho's career here because Guerrero has been positioned as a United States champion very recently. They get three and a quarter stars. It sort of feels like you guys are trying to figure out who Chris Jericho is, what to do with him, how to sort of push him. You're not really sure what you've got. Ultimately, is the decision made to give him a win here on a big show like Clash of the Champions a sort of a vote of confidence? I don't think it was a vote of confidence. I'll tell you from my perspective, and you know, looking at the timeline now in hindsight, it it, it kind of goes back to where we started in this conversation, my vision and mine, you know, Kevin Sullivan might've had his own or Terry Taylor or any number of other people that, that had some influence creatively because everybody did just like everybody does right now in WWE. It's a little bit of a different situation, obviously, but my vision was Chris Dean, Eddie and Chris as the core along with the sporadic and intermittent, um, integration of the the luchadors and our crew from japan when we could bring them in but i saw chris the day i hired him is one of those you know core four if if you want to call it that um and this probably is a manifestation of that i'm saying that was the plan i'm not trying to make myself sound smart but when you sit back and you listen to this show and you listen to the timeline of events and you realize that, no, we're not going to just pick a guy up that nobody's really ever seen or heard of before. And we're not really sure what we've got with him. We hear a lot of great things about him. So we're just going to throw him right in the mix and make him, you know, the cruiserweight champion. That's not what we did uh, with anybody, quite honestly, that I can recall. I'm sure you and Dave Messer can correct me on that at some point. But for the most part, it was bring him in. 
expose them, try to familiarize the audience with them. And when the storyline is right and the time is right, put them where you hope they, they're, they're going to be successful. And as you've just laid this whole thing out, that kind of sounds like what was done, whether it was Kevin Sullivan's you know, architecture or mine or a combination of the two. Or maybe it was Chris and Eddie and Dean, for all I know. Was, you know, and ideas and a plan you know, generally didn't begin and end with one person. Well, you finally got unless, your- unless they're really successful. And of course, if they're really successful, everybody takes credit for it. But if it shits the bed, <laughs> that's an orphan. <laughs> uh, the match you, you had dreamed about September 9th, 1997. It finally happens. Chris beats Brad Armstrong by DQ to retain the title. Chris is, you got uh, to build up to a match like that. You, you can't do. just throw that thing out there. <laughs> like I just said. You know, you've got you've got a second or third generation wrestler in Brad Armstrong who everybody regarded as one of the best technicians in the planet. He was a great looking guy. Chris, of course, looked like he walked right off the cover of GQ magazine. And in my mind, what I saw was not only a match that was a thing of beauty in the ring, it was a thing of beauty on the poster. It was awesome. I love you for that. Uh, Chris is pretty unhappy with WCW around this time. And he even wrote in his book, even though I'd been working in WCW for over a year, I'd never signed my contract. I wasn't holding out for more money or having any sort of legal disagreement. I just simply never put the pen to paper and returned the contract to WCW's lawyers. Nobody seemed to realize it. And I decided to see how long I could go without signing. It was astonishing to me that no one in the office had ever followed up with me about it. But this was also the same company that sent me a FedEx with nothing inside. So it wasn't exactly hard to believe as a free agent. I made a call to my friend, Don Callis. He was working in the WWF as the Jackal and had the ear of the head booker, Vince Russo. I asked Don to ask Russo if he would ever be interested in hiring me. And he said, quote, Russo said, whenever you want to come to the WWF, just say the word. And a few days later, that's what he hears. And he decides, you know what? Let's see what we can do. And it is sort of interesting that WCW had essentially not really paid attention to the contract and allowed this to this conversation to even happen. Of course, we know he doesn't wind up signing and he does eventually sign with you, but this contract sort of flying under the radar who's miss. I mean, obviously that's not your responsibility, but it was somebody's. I mean, this, this guy at the time has a fucking title for you guys, and he's not under contract in the middle of the Monday night war. Who's to blame for that sort of oversight? One of two people, it would have to, the buck would have to stop with Nick Lambros, but it would probably really be Diana Myers. Diana Myers was horrible. She was just horrible. And uh, I don't even want to go into it. <laughs> there was a lot of issues there on the legal side of things. Um, that was not, as you point out, it's not my control. Right. I didn't have a, I didn't have a tickle list of all the contracts that were coming due and, and what had been signed and wasn't signed. That was one of the negatives about Turner broadcasting. The way it was structured is finance was kind of off my limits, so to speak, with the exception of staying within budget and, you know, the things that from an operational point of view that, that we had to be aware of on a day-to-day basis. But when it came to legal, especially that was just, 
you know, we talk about things. I would approve things, and it would disappear up into Turner Legal in the North Tower, and it was a little bit of a vacuum from that point forward. So I, I could see how it happened. I really can. What kept Jericho from really pursuing this with Russo any further was the understanding that really you had taken a chance on him and he appreciated that and that you'd always been more than fair with him, especially when you talk about the money part and he felt like backing out and sort of leaving and taking advantage of this contract situation would have made him a real shit house. Those are his words. So in the end, you know, he sticks around and he sticks around for fall brawl, which goes down on September 14th. And Eddie Guerrero beats him for the cruiserweight title here in 17 minutes and 19 seconds, three and three quarter stars. Uh, what, what did Eddie and Chris have that was so special? I mean, it feels like every time they had a match, it was a good match. Is it just a similar style, a tr- an inherent trust between them, just their relationship? What made those matches click in your opinion? All of the above. I, you know, I think it has to start with trust. Um, I'm not a wrestler, never really done it. The, the things that I've done in the ring have nothing to do with being a wrestler. Um, but be, being around it and spending time and getting to know the people like your future father-in-law, Ric Flair, Steve Austin, and other people who I have a lot of respect for, you know, you've got, you, first of all, your styles have to mesh. They do. It's chemistry, just like you and Bruce, you know, or you and Tony. Uh, it's chemistry. And part of that chemistry is trust. Um, and I think that was especially true and respect. And that was especially true with Jericho, Benoit, Malenko, and Eddie. They were, they were very, very unique individuals who saw, who had the same vision in the ring, right? who understood the site who all agreed on the psychology and they were all very generous with each other because of the respect and the trust. And I think that in, in a large nutshell <laughs> is what made all of them, not just Jericho, all of them so special. I'm, I'm sort of curious about the relationship you had with MGM grand. Let's talk about Halloween havoc because you guys run Halloween havoc many years in a row here at MGM grand. And Tony has sort of freestyled on, on what happened when that Halloween havoc was really like the WCW super show. Although a lot of people regarded as Starcade, he thinks that internally the company really hung their hat on Halloween havoc, even during this era. And you guys are doing tremendous business here. For instance, in 97, it's a $297,000 gate, $102,000 in merchandise. It's an all time record for WCW, but it was a place that you know, not a lot of major shows were happening. Of course, famously WrestleMania nine happened there, but outside of that, it really becomes more of a WCW town in this era, especially the casino aspect that you guys were doing with MGM grand. How did that relationship come to be? Or is that something you would have been involved with? I know I advocated, you know, it was a Zane Bresloff. Ultimately at the end of the day, it was a Zane Bresloff, um, push. Uh, I do remember, uh, Zane and I were pretty close by then. I was, Zane was, a, was one of the people that I, I talked to at, you know, 10 o'clock at night about ideas or strategies, not so much creative ideas. They never really got into angles and storylines or who should go over who that wasn't what Zane was about. Zane was more about the business of the business 
And Zane had a lot of relationships in Las Vegas. Zane liked to gamble. <laughs> Zane spent a lot of time in Las Vegas and had a lot of great contacts in Las Vegas and had promoted there. So it was really Zane. And I remember the first time I went out to Vegas to talk to, to the management at MGM Grand uh, prior to doing a show there. And Zane was there with me. So that was really a Zane Bresloff idea. And it worked so well from the get-go and not just because we made a lot of money. I mean, that clearly that's part of it, a big part of it, but the idea that we were consistently going back and it wasn't just being a big show in Las Vegas. It was being a big show at the MGM grand. It was co-branding ourselves, which is one of the reasons why I think in a lot of people's mind, at least mine, I was, you know, Tony's right about this. Um, when he says internally, that was kind of like the big show, even though Starcade had the legacy. And up until probably 97, 98, you know, Starcade would be considered, you know, WCW's WrestleMania because that's how it was conceived and promoted. But in my mind, that Halloween Havoc was the show. And part of it was because we, we could do such great business there. But the other the part of it was in all of our promotions and all of our marketing, we're coming to you from the Garden Arena inside of the MGM Grand Casino, just like big promotions, rock concerts, UFC, and everybody else has done since that time until this day. That was a big part of it. So it, it was, in my mind, that was the show of the year. He works with Guido here, seven minutes and 18 seconds. Of course, Jericho gets the win. Of course, this is a name that a lot of people are familiar with because he's now the booker of new Japan pro wrestling. Uh, Jericho gets three stars in the wrestling observer. What do you remember about this relationship where you're able to feature some Japanese talent on your pay-per-view like this? Why did this make sense at the time? I guess we should remind everybody, um, he's working for war. Not New Japan. War is a uh, Japanese wrestling promotion. But I guess they have some sort of affiliation with New Japan. Yeah, they would have. I wouldn't have. There was no way I would have ever used anybody from Japan without, you know, coordinating with with my counterparts over there. So, yeah, he would have come through New Japan. Whatever his deal was, you know, trust me, (laughs) the relationships and the politics in Japan were were pretty complex. Um, I wouldn't even begin to try to understand them, but um, I wouldn't have brought him in unless it was through New Japan. It's sort of funny because Jericho's pretty fired up about this, and he's familiar with Guido because they work together in Japan, and he's excited. So he flies his dad in to see the match and they're having drinks at the MGM grand the night before the show. And Terry Taylor approaches him, everybody's favorite and says, Hey, they want Guido to go over. And Jericho says it made absolutely no sense. He's a regular employee. Guido's here for like a week. And Terry Taylor allegedly says, well, at least you'll be on the show. The boss can take a look at you and see what you can do. And Jericho's sort of floored by this thinking, like I've been with the company a whole year. If Eric doesn't know what I can do by now, losing to a quote unquote foreign exchange student certainly wasn't going to help. He says, when you showed up at the bar, he couldn't contain himself. And he comes over and sort of, even though he's never really complained before, he says to you, he does here. And he says, you're just as surprised as he was. And he, and he says, you said, why are you supposed to lose? Who are we promoting here? I'm going to change that immediately. What do you remember about the the finish for this, if anything, being changed and that exchange with with Jericho in Vegas? 
I don't recall it. Okay. It is a, a, an interesting match because Jericho nearly breaks his fucking neck in this fucking match. If you want to go out of your way to see it, let's talk about the next night. Uh, Eddie Guerrero pins Chris, Chris Jericho, but we start really cooking with gas on November 3rd, Chris pins Scott Hall. And this is an interesting decision at the time, especially what, since we talked about what we did so early in his WCW run and allegedly Chris is sort of the catalyst here. He goes to Kevin Sullivan and begs to put him in a few matches with quote unquote, big names to give him some credibility. And he says, Sullivan responded by booking him with Scott Hall, but it was supposed to be a five minute squash loss on nitro, but Hall decides to rebel and instead lets Jericho win. Now he kicks his ass for most of the match. And then Jericho rolls him up with a small cradle or a small package. And it's sort of fun to look back in in hindsight and hear that, wait a minute, Scott was supposed to go over, but he let Jericho win. What do you remember about this? How fucking fired up are you that these guys are going off script? I don't guess it's necessarily Jericho's fault, but Scott Hall clearly trying to stir shit up here. November 97. What do you remember? I don't remember that match. I mean, I just don't. 21 years ago. Sure. Um, But I do know that as you lay that out to me, that's kind of consistent with Scott. And I can see Scott going to Kevin Sullivan, who was the booker at that time, and convincing Kevin either by wearing him down or just convincing him that that was a good idea. And Kevin coming to me and saying, look, this is what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. And I can see myself going, okay, if it makes sense, that's what you want to do. We'll do it. I'm not putting it off on Kevin because I don't remember the match. I don't remember that conversation. But as you lay it out to me, does that sound like something Scott would do to prove a point? And, And in his own way, you know, using his psychology, get himself over and maybe bury Chris just a little bit in the process. I can see it. I could see it. Jericho goes and does an interview with one wrestling.com, which back in the day was a lot like today's pro wrestling insider. And in the promo that he does with one wrestling, cause that's really what he's doing. He challenges WCW to give him a chance and guarantee success if they do. And he says something like he'd noticed that Hall and Nash, whenever they would complain about something, which was often, they usually got their way. So he was just following their lead and that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so to speak. And Terry Taylor comes to him and says, he read the interview on the website and he says, you've done the right thing. Quote, Eric knows about it and you should ask him for your release. I think you'd be surprised with his answer. And Jericho, of course, freestyles. I didn't really need a release. I don't have a contract. And he, he says that when he meets with you, you sort of cut to the chase and you said, I read your little interview and I think you're right in a lot of ways. You're spinning your wheels and you're doing nothing. The problem is I can't do anything more with you right now because you don't have familiarity with the fans that the top guys with years of TV exposure do. And you know, he sort of pushes back a little bit and eventually you say, I think you have talent and I don't want to lose you. So just be patient. And he sort of freestyles that patience wasn't really one of his strong suits, but he feels like this meeting sort of got his point across and he was satisfied and settled. Do you remember this? Yes, I I do remember it. Um, Not word for word, but I think, you know, Chris's recollection is, 
if not 100% accurate, real close. I do remember the time in, in particular because it wasn't. It didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just the incident with the with the one wrestling.com interview, which was basically. And by the way, Bob Ryder, um, who worked for us at the time, um, it, it wasn't just a, an isolated or the first incident. It, there had been conversations that were similar in tone. Chris. As I've said throughout this entire show, Chris always had a very clear idea of who he was and who he wanted to be and what his potential was. He clearly, even by w- virtue of you know some of the things you've read from his book, which I don't know when his book was written, but you know he clearly didn't think much of the cruiserweight division or the opportunity that provided to him. Um, he saw himself as Bill Goldberg, not Bill the character, but he saw himself in the same light as a Hulk Hogan, as a Bill Goldberg, as a Scott Hall, as a Kevin Nash. He didn't want to be the king of cruiserweights. He wanted to be the, he wanted to be the king of the ring. And specifically in WWE, not in WCW, as Chris would acknowledge later on. The, so there were a series of those conversations. And Chris was frustrated. And he did express it to me. And I did ask him to be patient. And I did think the world of him. And I know I'm fast forwarding here. I didn't want to see him go. And I asked him aggressively. I didn't beg him. Might have been close to, to you know, give me a chance to try to, to, to keep him in WCW and not leave because I didn't want him to leave. Right. I knew what an asset he was, but I couldn't get there as quickly as he wanted me to get there. And he was sort of ready for it here in 97 as well. You know, he gets wins in November over Disco Inferno. Rey Mysterio beats him. He's in the 60-man battle royal for World War III. The Giant wins that. The next night on Nitro, Buff Bagwell beats him. Then Scott Hall beats him. Then Bagwell beats him again on December 22nd. And he writes in his book that his patience is really wearing thin. And he runs into Terry Taylor at a Nitro taping and says, What's up? And Terry Taylor says, Just your career. We're going to turn you heel. And this is sort of the moment that the light bulb switches for Jericho and maybe even WCW when he finally has an opportunity to turn heel. Would you say that's fair to say that that's when he really started to shine? Yeah. And that's what, first of all, that's what he wanted. And and not only Chris, by the way, 96, 97, 98 was a very, very tough time to be a baby face for anybody, including Chris. Let's talk about why that is, because I think that gets glossed over a lot, but Don Callis even mentioned this the other day. The worst thing to be is a fucking cool heel, because if you're a cool heel, all that you do is leave the baby face looking like a silly, goofy motherfucker and the NWO, although they're heels, they're fucking cool heels. So if you're a baby face, you sort of look pretty lame. Isn't that fair to say? Well, why don't you, let's pick up the phone and call Don Callis and ask him, you know, how did Bill Goldberg deal with that? How did Sting and his Crow character deal with that? Um, it's possible. It's not easy. Right. And I'm sure Don Callis, with all of his expertise, as we're seeing manifest itself over an impact wrestling or whatever it's called right now, I'm, I'm sure we're seeing a lot of, you know, a, a much better approach to psychology. But let's go back. At that time, which, by the way, at that time, those really cool heels that Don Callis, you know, thinks is such a dumbass idea, um, were printing money, printing money, and turned the business around. 
just like DX did for uh, WWE. Eric, I think you're getting fired up about the same thing. You just said it was really hard to be a baby. Face, no, but you know, what there's a saying. difference between acknowledging that it was hard and burying the idea. Well, no, he didn't. Of bury, course, it was fucking hard. Of course, it was hard. He didn't bury the NWO at all. He was referencing today's product that if you're a heel, be a fucking heel. Because you're not really doing the baby face any favors in the process. He, he didn't say anything critical of the NWO or your booking at all. I mean, you can continue to shit on him if you'd like to, but he wasn't you here at all. If we're burying cool heels, because that's what I heard you say, right. that's what the NWO was. And the context that we're talking about is Chris Jericho and the NWO. So forgive me for getting a little confused but when we're talking about that period of time 96 97 98 when we're talking about the nwo in particular and chris's frustration with being a baby face and by reference the, being the, the the cool heels which was the the nwo at that time and later on in 98 dx and then we introduce don Callis, who says it's the worst thing you could do is to be a cool heel it's a little confusing now go back it, it during that period of time, it was a fucking horrible time to be a babyface because it was a transition. There was never heels like that before. There were never NWO type heels right. or DX type heels back then. It had never been done before. So your traditional baby faces, all of your guys that learned, you know, how to wrestle, you know, back in the sixties and the seventies or the eighties or nineties who learned a formula from guys who learned that formula back in the forties and the fifties and the sixties, they had a real difficult time because it, it completely changed the paradigm uh, of a character. So it doesn't surprise me that Chris early on wanted to be a heel. Nobody wanted Sting didn't want to be a baby face. Once the NWO started getting hot, nobody wanted to go out there and have a match with the heel NWO. Cause it was like pulling fucking teeth to try to get over as a baby face. A couple guys did, but the majority of them hated it. Chris included. So I'm sure once he got that, that green light to become a heel, he probably felt not only relieved, because he wasn't swimming upstream every single night. But I think creatively and instinctively, he was more of a heel than he was a babyface to begin with. Look at him now. I mean, look at the stuff he's doing now. He's more, and now he's got carte blanche. Right. You know, he, and he did even in WWE when I was there. No, nobody has carte blanche in WWE except for, you know, maybe The Rock or, you know, Steve Austin at one point or another. But, for the most part, when I was in WWE, while Chris was there, you know, I watched all the rest of the talent, you know, in the locker room, you know, get their scripts and go back and just figure out how they're going to do it. And then I'd look over in a corner and there's Chris Jericho with Brian Gwertz changing shit. <laughs> I mean, that's just Chris. Let's talk about the decision to turn him heel here and the way it's done. You know, the, the plan is to go on a losing streak, which he was essentially already on. But now after each loss, he's going to snap and do like a temper tantrum. And Terry is pretty specific in his direction to Jericho here. Don't play it for laughs. Play it seriously. Like you just lost control. So he starts pitching fits, smashing chairs against the ring post. He even rips the suit jacket right off Dave Penzer. Um, uh, he of course buys Penzer a new jacket, tears it to pieces again. But he's begging the crowd for their forgiveness, and he's trying to sort of play like he's still a baby face. He's just had a slip up here. 
and it really starts to give him some credibility. What do you remember? I mean, how brilliant was this? This is an excellent way to sort of turn a guy heel. And I don't know that anybody's done it better than Jericho did here in late 97. I don't either. And that's really Jericho. That wasn't Terry Taylor. It wasn't Eric Bischoff. It wasn't Kevin Sullivan. That was, that is, that's why Chris is who Chris is today because he got a little bit of rope. He got a little bit of opportunity and he made it really work for himself. And I, some of the, you know, when I look back at some of them, just not the biggest moments and, you know, things that changed the world and all that kind of stuff. But when I, if somebody says right now, what do you think some of the most entertaining all around entertaining content that you produced at, at WCW in the nineties? And it would be like Chris Jericho would be right at the top of the list because it was, he was a heel, but it, but his character was so good, and he executed it so well. And he had his own creative. Like I said, nobody sat down, Terry Taylor, me, or anybody else sat down and said, okay, beat by beat, like someone would in WWE today. Beat by beat, here's what we want you to do. Here's what we want you to say. They would hand him like an etch-a-sketch. Say, okay, I, you know, I played in the back. Here's, here's my etch-a-sketch version of what I want you to do. Go fill in the blanks. And then Chris would go fill in the blanks, and the shit that he did was amazing. From Ralphus to the, you know, his goofy ass hair that he ended up coming to the ring with, and his whole persona. I mean, he just, he just did such an amazing job. And he's doing an amazing job here at Sold Out '98. He's working with Rey Mysterio, and he wins the the cruiserweight title from Rey here. But this is the last match before Mysterio has knee surgery. So after the match, that's really the story of course he gets the uh the tap out win here with the lion tamer but after the match jericho destroys mysterio's knee takes the brace off starts hitting him with the brace puts it on the ring step smashing it with the tv box and then mysterio is carried out of the ring and he's of course going to have to have reconstructive surgery on the knee three and a quarter stars man the heel turn is in full effect and this is great stuff he's even modifying his look here He's growing long sideburns and trying to get like a Gene Simmons poodle top knot in the top of his hair. Uh, he's wearing a white leather vest that's airbrushed with a big picture of himself. And he's wearing like elbow length gloves. And he's just walking in the most arrogant sort of ridiculous way ever. And it's getting over in, in, a, in a big way. As you're seeing this sort of manifest itself week after week. Do you realize what a good decision this was? What's the feedback you're giving him? It feels like everybody knew right away. We've got fucking gold with this. Uh, how could, how could we not? I mean, yes, yes, yes. And more. Yes. Everybody saw it. I mean, he was, he was, he was forcing his way to the top of everybody's radar. I mean, he just, he wasn't going to be denied and you couldn't deny it. The crowd was having a blast. The boys were laughing their asses off. People were wanting to work with him. Um, that's when you know you're getting over. So, yeah, there was nobody that I can recall ever going, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> he goes on a win streak, man. He's beating everybody here, whether it's Malenko, Guerrero, Chavo, whoever. Super Brawl 8, he gets a win there over Hooventude. And Meltzer would say this is easily the best match on the show. He gives it three and three-quarter stars. It, it is sort of a, a match that maybe gets glossed over, but I can't wait to take you to task on this someday. We'll briefly touch on it here though, and then circle back because this is a Jericho show. This is the match where Hooventude has to unmask. And it was a heavily debated topic. 
you know, I, I know we're going to do a full episode on this sometime. Give us a taste of why you fucking wanted to unmask Juventud Guerrero. There's not a single reason. There's a couple reasons. Number one, the lucha culture and awareness in the United States to the 92.5 million households that I was catering to and marketing to didn't really appreciate, get the whole history and legacy of the masks. So while I understood it in Mexico and it did bring an interesting dynamic initially into WCW and on Nitro. There's also a reality as a television producer, and it's something that I know is beat into the heads of WWE talent to this day, is you sell your character and you sell your match with your eyes. And if the audience can't see your face and they can't see your eyes or you don't register for the, in order for the cameras to pick it up, it's why you'll never watch a WWE match and see somebody selling with their head down. They always sell with their head up. And you always see the pain or the joy or the frustration very evidently in their face. Kevin Dunn and his team do a great job of getting those shots. And I was trying to accomplish that same thing because I felt at that point that I had done everything that I could really do with the luchadors, the masked ones in particular. Well, they're all on a mask, but I, the, I had done everything that I could do with them. And in order for me to try to take it to another level and step it up and make their characters even more important, that I had to have the ability to sell and create emotion with their looks the same way everybody else was doing it. I didn't have a strong licensing and merchandising opportunity for the masks like the WWE did, you know, eight or 10 years later with Rey Mysterio. But so for me, what was I giving up? I was giving up a licensing and merchandising opportunity that for the most part didn't really exist. And what was I possibly going to get? I was possibly going to get a way to better utilize that talent by being able to tell a better story with them because their faces would help me tell that story that I couldn't necessarily get in an interview all the time. And I certainly couldn't get when they had a mascot. It's a heavily debated topic. I can't wait to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to spare the beating for now because this is something I've wanted to talk about for a long time, but I don't want to get sidetracked. Let's keep going here. And talk about something that Meltzer wrote, because I know that'll get your ass fired up. In the March 16th Observer, he writes, Benoit, Jericho, and Dean Malenko all quote-unquote bumped into Vince McMahon, Shawn Michaels, and Steve Austin and others on March 3rd at the hotel near the Pittsburgh airport. Uh, Steiners, Kurt Henning, and some others were there as well. The WWF had been running Wheeling, West Virginia, and WCW was in Johns, uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And so... They all have this sort of bump into meeting. Is there any sort of concern when you hear about this? Because allegedly, um, Guerrero tries to get a release and you threaten to tie him up legally. And it's a bit of a sore point. And 
I guess this whole happen, you know, accidental, accidental bumping into meeting that's written about here is what gets all this circulated. Do you recall this at all? I do not. And I wouldn't have been concerned that would, that would have been, especially during the, the, you know, that was a very litigious era between WWE and WCW. I find it hard to, I'm not saying it didn't happen or I I don't believe it happened, but I, I find it difficult to believe that Vince or anybody else would have suggested in any way, shape, or form at that particular time when both companies were under a high degree of scrutiny from a legal perspective to tortiously interfere because any suggestion that Eddie Guerrero tried to get out of his contract to come to WWE would be tantamount to tortious interference, which is, which is a pretty pretty – it's an ominous charge in a court of law because there's – you know. There's damages that extend way beyond just immediate damages. And I don't think Vince would have done it. It could have happened. There was a lot of frustration with a lot of guys at that time. Maybe you know, Eddie was a hothead. Eddie and I would get into it often. Um, wouldn't have surprised me, but I, I would not have been concerned about anybody jumping or leaving. And I would have tied him up in court. Of course. I would, I would, I would, have, I would have wrapped him up in chains and thrown him in a river. I love you for that. March is uh, uncensored month, and it goes down in Mobile here in 98. Jericho retains the Cruiserweight title, beating Dean Malenko in 14 minutes and 42 seconds. Uh, after the match, which Meltzer wrote had a great finish, and he gives it three and a half stars, Gene Oakland comes to the ring and blows off Jericho and then starts browbeating Malenko. This is directly from the Observer. Something fierce, telling him he'd lost on four pay-per-views in a row, that he was a loser, and he was supposed to win this match and blow it again. It looked like Oakland was turning heel while the normally emotionless Malenko act like he was about to cry. Malenko never said a word while Oakland was ripping on him until he finally said he was going home and walked out three and a half stars. what do you think of the creative here? You know, I don't know where we were going with that. So it's hard for me to, 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 comment on that gene would not have taken that direction unless he was given that direction sure um so clearly there was a a story or an arc or an angle that was being developed there i don't recall what it was well Uh, you know you're gonna have jericho go on tv and start calling him stinko malenko and say he's now working the grill at harry's burgers in tampa there you go yeah yeah so that's the deal but you sort of are positioning the guy and just outright having one of your baby face announcers fucking call the guy a loser. It is a little uncharacteristic of traditional wrestling thinking. God, imagine that uh, disrupting yeah. the paradigm. <laughs> uh, the spring break edition of nitro goes down on March 16th this year. And it's a pretty fun deal. Uh, Hoovy is working with Chris here. And before the match, Jericho's doing a promo where he's talking about all the trophies he's won recently. Mysterio's knee, Hoovy's mask, Dean's dignity, and Meltzer would comment, Chris is carrying himself like a superstar. Is this fair to say by March of 98, just about three months into the the sort of heel turn run here, he's already a made guy? I Yeah, I think it's fair. And here's, here's what else is happening there. Um, as you lay that out to me and I'm, you know, visualizing it now in my head because some of the stuff I just haven't thought about in, you know, 21 years, but as you lay that, that scenario out kind of beat by beat, what, what's happening right there was that we're now integrating story 
and characters in a much bigger way into that cruiserweight division. Yep. Um, and and clearly Chris is emerging, you know, as the leader in that group because he just had more charisma. He he may not have been as gifted as Chris Benoit, technically. Um, maybe close. Maybe some people think he was better. I don't know. I don't. Um, but he was close. He was certainly all of them were in that category. But Chris clearly had the most charisma and the ability and dimension to his character to be able to carry something like that. But again, going from from the, the period that you're talking about now, which is March of 98, going back to 24 months earlier when there really wasn't any story and there wasn't any character in the cruiserweight division. And it really was all about the athleticism and the presentation uh, in a more traditional wrestling formula or at least perhaps not a traditional wrestling formula, but maybe more of a traditional Japanese wrestling formula because that really was the style in Japan at that time. It's one of the things that I was trying to import into WCW. Um, By this time, clearly we had morphed into something that was more showbiz. It's sort of, um, I mean, to me, this next segment we're going to talk about is maybe the most memorable thing that Jericho did in WCW, at least to me. And there's a lot of fun moments. But March 30th, 1998 is a big one. He beats Marty Jannetty in only a minute and 22 seconds, but that's not the story. After the match, Chris gets on the mic and says, Malenko was a man of a thousand holds, but he's better. He's the man of a thousand four holds (laughs) And, and almost every other, he has this giant like rack of paper, the old school computer paper that sort of had the the little holes on the side. I know some kind of like the list, right? It, it's tremendous. It's the original list of Jericho and he's running through all the different moves like, you know, arm bar and then a Saskatchewan spinning nerve hold arm bar shooting star, staple press arm bar, right-handed punch arm bar. They go to commercial. They come back. He's still reading the fucking list. This is one of my favorite moments in nitro history, March 30th, 1998. If you'd like to go relive it. Who wrote that? Whose idea was that? I remember discussing it with Chris. I think I don't know that I was involved in it creatively or if I just approved it, but I I remember loving it because again it was different and I love the idea that it bridged a commercial break. Right. Because uh, it was so different, you know, and and just was completely opposite of what everybody else was doing at the time, and I thought it was funny as hell. So I, I remembered being involved in it, but I can't, you know, I could, I could be like everybody else and take credit for it, but I don't think that would be fair. I think it was probably more than anybody. It was Chris and Chris laying it out and everybody going, fuck, that's awesome. Uh, the, the hits keep coming, man. The next week he beats Hooven two to retain. And before the match, he uh, dedicated nitro to Dean Malenko and questioned why Prince Ikea was going to get a shot at the title, calling him Prince Nakaraki. And he's going to have a, a great time just mispronouncing everybody's name. Just fucking classic stuff here. Uh, he does have this match with uh, Prince Ikea. And before he does the match with Ikea, they do a deal where he's trying to prove that Prince Ikea actually weighs more than 225 pounds, which is the weight limit. And there's, there, there's not some sort of official weigh-in or anything but Jericho says he's got JJ Dillon's permission to do this. So he brings IK out and has him step on the scale. And Tony Schiavone tells us that IK weighs 218 pounds. Of course, you know what's, what's coming. 
he picks up the scale and hits Ikea over the head with it. Fucking great stuff, man. I just, I feel like we're saying that a lot, but this 1998 is probably the most important year of Jericho's career. And I know a lot of people are going to say, no, it was 2001 when he beat rock and Austin the same night. But to me, this is it, dude. This is the thing that put him on the, on the map. 1990. He, he would not have beat Austin and rock in the same night. Had it not been for this period of time. Sure. I totally agree. Uh, spring stampede 1998. Good stuff here. He's going to beat Prince IK at nine minutes and 55 seconds. The fans sort of look at it like a popcorn match, or at least that's what Meltzer would write. He says they didn't do a good job with it, but it's not their fault that the fans aren't into it. The match itself is pretty good. Three and a quarter stars. They just weren't into it. And I don't think at this point it's that they're not into Jericho. They just probably weren't bought into Prince Ikea. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Who was an advocate for Prince Ikea being in a featured spot like this? Kevin liked him a lot. And Prince was a good, he was a good worker. He had a lot of potential. He just didn't have any charisma. And, you know, I mean, it's not his fault. You, you're, you know, it's like being born with a great voice. You can improve upon it, but you've got to be born with it. Um, <clears throat> and he had a lot of the, he, he had a lot of good attributes, but charisma wasn't, wasn't one of them. And I think he was put in a horrible position. Sort of a fun deal here the very next night. Uh, we've got Chris beating Hooventu to retain the title, and he puts him in the, the Lion Tamer, but Hoovy refuses to tap out, so he winds up passing out from the pain, and the referee stops the match. Jericho has a hilarious reaction. He looks down and starts crying and screaming, Oh, my God, I killed Hoovy. Uh, he beats Psychosis the next week, and they set up a big angle on May 4th where Jericho comes out with a framed picture of Dean Malenko, and he's dedicating the match to him. Just hilarious stuff, riffing on his name. And that sets up Slambury 98, one of the more memorable angles on pay-per-view. This is the show that we just recently talked about that had Eric Bischoff challenge Vince McMahon to a fight. But here we've got a cruiserweight battle royal. And the gimmick is the winner gets a shot that night against Jericho for the cruiserweight title. And Chris comes out first and does the introductions for each of the wrestlers. And they're all just ridiculous. He, he describes Il Dandy as a winner of a Lou Ferrigno lookalike contest. He says, Hooventude is the ugliest man in the sport. Uh, he says, Chavo Guerrero is the scourge of the uh, Guerrero family. He says, Damien is, uh, he can't afford a mask. Uh, so he uses paint. There's lots of people who say, you know, just hilarious. We're going to, we're going to say this guy is a, is a Mater D and that guy can get you a great deal on some hubcaps. You know the the story here. It's hilarious stuff. If you've never seen it, go back and find it. Slambury 98. Here's the fun part, though. Cyclope is in the match, and it comes down to Cyclope and Juventud Guerrero. They have a conversation, though. They're not wrestling. They're just talking. And then Guerrero jumps out of the ring and just eliminates himself. So, of course, that brings Jericho in because that means Cyclope has won the match. They start wrestling and you know, what's coming. It's Dean Malenko. He takes the mask off and Dean Malenko has found a way back in and gets the, uh, the Texas Cloverleaf for the tap out three and a quarter stars. One of the more memorable angles of Jericho's run here in 98. I just love the setup, the, the whole list of the man of a thousand four holds the picture, the dedicating 
you know, say, calling him Stinko Malenko, the whole deal. And now the payoff here with the reveal with the mask genius. Who can we give credit to Chris? Fucking a man. Dude was ahead of his time. He was still is <laughs> still is once he kind of proved himself and he did early and he was persistent. As I said, when we first started this, he had a clear vision of who he is or who he wanted to be and what he had the potential to be. And he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And once he got the green light to go, he took that opportunity and he, and he fucking ran with it. And once it started working the way it was working, I'm pretty sure that 99% of everything that you just laid out came out of Chris's head. He brought it to me, brought it to Terry, brought it to Kevin, brought it to all of us, ran through it, walked through it, and everybody went, <laughs> go do it. It was awesome. He starts a conspiracy victim run here, showing up with the sign, and then eventually even you know, trying to call out J.J. Dillon, saying that this is unfair. Malenko should not have been in that cruiserweight. Uh, battle Royal at Slambury June 1st is a pretty fun time in the company as well, because we see a video of Jericho in Washington, DC, and he's saying, I want to meet with all the members of Congress and the president about this conspiracy. Of course, we know it gets turned away. There's no big payoff. He does get a win over Hooventude and he's working with Malenko at a lot of the house shows, but this whole conspiracy theory thing going to Washington, DC, is this also Jericho's creative? I don't remember. Sure. I would, I would assume so. Of course we know what this is leading to. They're working towards a rematch with Malenko and Jericho and JJ Dillon is sort of stuck in the middle as the commissioner of WCW. Let's get to great American bash June 14th, 1998. The match finally happens. The, the, the title has been stripped and it's, it's a vacant title here and Jericho is going to win by DQ and I don't know exactly what to make of this match because it does feel like maybe you shouldn't have stripped it. I mean, I get it's a storyline and they're trying to do something fun here, but now there's a DQ finish here. Three stars though. These guys had good chemistry together. I don't think they ever had a bad match and it is sort of interesting what, what the difference a year makes. You look a year prior to this and he feels sort of shiftless, but he's really working with the same guys he was then. The difference that, you know, you just discussed a minute ago is very much that now there's a story attached to it. Do you, do you remember there being like an aha moment with the way the cruiserweights had been booked? I mean, I know that you sort of defended the Hooventude unmasking earlier, and maybe that is another piece of what you're trying to do here. And you're trying to give them something and tell stars and not make it just about the bell to bell in-ring action. But is there like a moment or a conversation or a meeting where you can look back and say, here's where we decided to sort of shift directions or did it just happen organically? Nothing ever happens in, in an aha moment. And, and if people tell you that it did, they're probably remembering it the way they want to remember it. Things evolved. You know, the one thing I will tell you is that after a couple, you know, from 90, whatever, 95, 96, 97, now we're into 98. We had been, you know, we'd been doing the cruiserweight thing for quite a while. The novelty, if you will, of that different presentation and that Japanese style and lucha style had kind of worn off. And, you know, it was a relatively small group of, it was a small talent, you know, pool in, in, in that cruiserweight division. 
here, here's another thing that was really critical to that cruiserweight division, and it became problematic. And none of the guys in it will really want to talk about it much. Maybe they will, but one of the things that guys hated about being in the cruiserweight division, once they got used to having television time and once they got used to getting a check in the mail every two weeks and once they got used to people recognizing them, you know, out on the street, because that all where, you know, at first you go, wow, this is awesome. You know, this is great. 130 grand a year home, man, that's an amazing amount of money until you start spending it. And then you'd really like 250,000 a year. Until you get that. And then you really want 350000 a year. Nobody's ever satisfied once you get into that kind of th- – that role, if you will. But one of the things that guys didn't like was being called cruiserweights. They didn't like the fact that we were distinguish- distinguishing them based on their size. It felt to them like they meant less by default. In my mind, it was the opposite because of what they were capable of doing in the ring. But because that group was pretty small, I didn't want 250-pound guys like we've seen in other wrestling organizations. They call it the X division. Well, what does the X division mean? Well, just, the rules are there are no rules, which is like the most bullshit explanation of a division that I've ever heard in my life. To this day, I've never heard anything quite that fucking stupid in my life. We wanted the cruiserweight division to to be separate and apart, to be different than the heavyweight division. But the guys in it didn't dig that. They didn't like it. They didn't want to be limited. And I understand that. So once we had kind of mixed and matched everybody up the way they could, the way that we could, so that we didn't feel like we've seen that and done that a couple of times, now, you know, two years have gone by, that's when really the evolution of the stories made sense. It didn't make sense in the very beginning because nobody knew who those guys were. Those stories, Chris Jericho couldn't have been that character two years earlier. Right. Because they didn't know him. He didn't have a backstory. He didn't have a relationship with any of the other guys. That story between him and Dean Malenko made sense because we spent two years building that relationship. Not necessarily in an angle. But those guys, you know, people recognize them as the cruiserweight guys. And we, we establish their relationships and their backstories. So now when Chris Jericho, two years later, is all of a sudden dumping on Dean Malenko, it kind of matters. It wouldn't have mattered two years earlier. So my point in trying to answer your question was I think we were forced after a couple of years of cruiserweights, we had no choice but to get into stories and characters. But it didn't happen in a meeting. It didn't, you know, it wasn't a cathartic moment where a light bulb went off in your head and you woke up and ran, you know, to the desk so you could write down, you know, the dream that you just had that was going to change the world. I think it just happened over time. Out of necessity is probably a better way to say it. It was around this time that Jericho got his first t-shirt which is a big deal whenever you get your first piece of merch and he says that around this time you know the nwo was making hundreds of thousands of dollars based on their merchandise sales but he didn't have a t-shirt even though a guy like rick steiner who he felt like he was getting better reactions than did have a shirt so he gets with the merch guys and he designs the monday night nitro version of monday night jericho for a t-shirt and he does a Jericho holic concept. And you sort of green light both of them, 
but maybe the royalty wasn't exactly what he was hoping for because he says once he got a, a royalty check for zero dollars and zero cents uh the actual stamp cost 37 cents and he sort of jokes that his next royalty check after he had these shirts was for zero dollars and 37 cents can you and a lot of people have been really critical of the the merchandise system that wcw had or lack thereof in that whenever they were with vince they would get this giant sort of statement you know 50 pages or more here's everything that was purchased and here's your cut of every little thing and with wcw that wasn't maybe the case and i feel like that had to be brought up more than once by guys when they came over what was the wcw answer to that and do you agree that was maybe a weak point for turner of course it was a weak point it's one of the reasons why we had guaranteed contracts because we didn't have a sophisticated or mature or even a fundamental licensing and merchandising program not only did we not have an accounting formula um, that would allow us to report to talent what was being sold and where and what their royalties were so we clearly didn't have that but the reason we didn't have it is because we weren't selling anything we didn't have a licensing and merchandising program. And yeah, there were guys who had T-shirts and they made maybe, you know, Rick Steiner maybe would sell three T-shirts, you know, at, in an arena where there were 15,000 people. The only T-shirts that were selling were NWO. And even those royalties were a fucking mess because we didn't have the infrastructure figured out to track it because WCW never had any licensing or merchandising other than maybe the chicken shit stuff you would sell at an arena, which was minimal. I mean, really minimal, uh, for the most part. So, I mean, the, the criticism and, and no, it actually, it wasn't ever a problem for me to be honest, because when guys were being hired, they all knew they were getting a guaranteed check because right. I couldn't say to them with a straight face, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you four and a half percent of all your merchandise because the next question would have been great. How much merchandise do you think I'll sell? How much merchandise did Singh sell or anybody sell? Can you give me an example of what someone did last year? <laughs> it would have been crickets. So it's a, it's a fair criticism and it became a problem not in the beginning, not in 94, not in 95, not in 96, not even in 97. But by 98, when we're selling out houses, we're rocking pay-per-views, when we're stomping a mud hole in the WWF, when the ratings are going through the roof, when ABC is taking out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal, the network up fronts, trying to convince advertisers not to spend their money in wrestling because WCW Nitro has five of the top seven hours in, in all of television. At that point, yeah, a lot of the talent started feeling like, wait a minute, I know that we got this big guarantee, and I know what Eric told me that the reason we're getting a guarantee is because we don't have a revenue-sharing program because they don't really have any revenue, but now they do when we want some. And it became a problem, but not until you know probably 98 and certainly in 99. One of the things that has sort of become legendary is a story that Jericho tells that essentially – uh, the gist is his mom goes to buy an action figure, a Jericho action figure. She's all excited. She gets home and notices the receipt says Hulk Hogan action figure. And a lot of people are under the impression that Hogan had negotiated such a good deal for himself that any piece of merchandise that was sold for WCW Hogan got a piece of, and that led Jericho to sort of freestyling 
Hogan probably made more on the sale of the Jericho figure than Jericho did. How would you respond to that? Do me a favor. And when it, when this show goes up, listen to yourself, listen to that question and just ask yourself if that makes any sense at all. So, so Jericho's suggesting, I guess that, and maybe he was doing it tongue in cheek, but Jericho is suggesting that someone at a local target in Calgary or a dollar store or wherever his mother bought an action figure printed a receipt incorrectly that somehow that was indicative of a Machiavellian marketing program masterminded by Hulk Hogan. I'm sorry. It's fucking insane. Well, I mean, you did have Hulk Hogan on an insane contract where he was getting paid. No, 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 no. no. Okay. How, how insane was it? Let's you throwing it out there. You're airing facts, not in evidence. So let's bring out the evidence. How insane was it? And what percentage of Chris Jericho merchandise do you suggest Hulk Hogan got? I think we should maybe just breed, beat up the Hulk Hogan contract on another episode and not get sidetracked. Uh, okay. No, I have it in front so of me. So that's your version of, I don't recall. No, I don't. It's not that it's a matter of you paid the motherfucker $20,000 a month to wear NWO t-shirts. You're giving him 25% of your net receipts and actual licensing fees for generic non-talent specific NWO merchandise. So he gets a piece of fucking everything that you do. Why would this be any different? In fact, he got a 50% royalty on the actual license fees received by WCW on the licensing of Hulk Hogan. So he gets 50% of everything for him and 25% of everything for the NWO. And oh, by the way, a $20,000 a month salary in order to just wear NWO shit in public. I mean, the thing goes on and on and on. I have it in front of me, but it just feels like this is going to be a shouting match that maybe we should table for another time. I can't fucking wait. Yeah, we'll cover we'll cover that some other time. Bash at the Beach, 1998 in San Diego, and Rey Mysterio returns to a huge pop and pins Chris Jericho to win the WCW Cruiserweight title in about six minutes. And, of course, they have Dean Malenko involved here. He tries to run for Malenko. Arn stops him because, of course, there's the horseman aspect. And we're off to the races. And, most importantly, Mysterio got his return and his big payoff. So the next night on Nitro... J.J. Dillon, Chris Jericho, Rey Mysterio, and Dean Malenko are all out for a conference. And the gist is Malenko and Mysterio are going to agree to wrestle later in the show for the number one contendership because they're saying that this wasn't really fair what happened. Um, let's, let's keep it moving here and talk about Road Wild, August 8th, 1998, you're just dying to do this, aren't you? What? You're just dying to bust my balls about Road Wild. Well, I am, but I feel like, man, you know, we're having a good time talking about Jericho. We'll do it another time. Uh, Hooventude wins the Cruiserweight title from Jericho here in 16 minutes and 24 seconds. Three and a half stars. Um, it is sort of an interesting deal because we've still got this Malenko aspect where Malenko's all over these matches. Uh, this is real a real cruiserweight feud now at this point that's carrying over to the TV, to the pay-per-views everywhere, but a win here for the title for Hooventude does feel a little bit out of left field because seemingly once he was unmasked, you guys didn't do a lot with him. Why was Hoovy the right guy here? I would imagine 
like we did so often was to do something that was unpredictable. There you go. To get a re- to, to get a reaction out of Chris, to give him something to bitch about. Let's talk about the next night on Nitro. This is probably the moment that Jericho's been looking forward to. He does drop the cruiserweight, but it's because the very next night he wins the TV title from Stevie Ray. I'm not saying the TV title is this prestigious belt, certainly here in 1998. However, he probably doesn't want that cruiserweight tag, you know, on him. So he's not tag title, but just the, you know, the name. So he's sort of shed of that when he becomes the television champion here. And Meltzer sort of writes that maybe there were some other ideas for him. The idea proposed to Jericho was for Giant to be his bodyguard and for him to join the black and white, but he turned it down. And probably rightfully so, because he'd become background for Hogan interviews and lose his individuality. Now, Chris would write that most of the group was made up of ex-WWF superstars, and it seemed obvious to him that you were enamored with Vince's old employees and wanted this to be the top heel group. And that's why he returned down the offer to join. He didn't want to sort of be part of the guys who helped lose its edge because he felt like some of the new additions to the group had sort of made it not as cool as maybe it had been a year prior. What do you remember about him being discussed as being a member of the NWO and him allegedly turning it down? First of all, he didn't turn down anything. Chris didn't have creative control. So there's, there's a flaw in that premise of, of that recollection. Um, could it have been suggested? Could he have balked? Yeah. I'll go with that as a possibility. Let me tell you what he says. He he wrote in his book, I think it would be cool, but I've got a good thing going and I don't want to give that up by joining the NWO. I don't want to ride your coattails and I don't, don't want you guys to ride on mine. He says it was a brash statement, but Eric didn't seem to care. And he said, if you don't want to be in the NWO, that's fine, but I still want the giant to help you win the TV title. So let's keep the same finish. We'll figure out why he helped you later. Your thoughts. I'll buy it. I mean, I'll, I'll buy that. I said that. Um, do you remember anybody else turning down or not? I mean, I know he didn't turn it down. You're saying he didn't turn it down. He didn't turn it down. There was a, there was a, there was a constant discussion with Chris. It was his nature. Like I said, a couple times now, he was constantly pushing. He was constantly exploring. He was constantly suggesting throughout 97 in 98 in 99 or up until the time he left. And when I got to WWE and he was there, he was doing the same fucking thing. So that's Chris Jericho. All right. And there may have been some discussion about the NWO, which by the way, I don't recall because I can't imagine that making any sense. The only thing that I really recall, and I'm probably fast forwarding just a little bit is Chris really wanted to, to work with Bill Goldberg. And that was a problem for me. For a lot of reasons, or a couple of reasons that were pretty significant, but anything that was discussed at that point was just a discussion and a suggestion. But I, I guarantee you, I never went to Chris and said, "Chris, this is what I want you to do." And Chris said, "No, I'm not going to do that." Right. That never. That never happened. Let's talk about something that did happen that was fucking over like Rover, man. He decided he wants to sort of rip off the spinal tap bit where the camera's backstage showing him try to get ready and walk to the ring, but he gets turned around and he's lost on his way to the ring. And he wants to keep mocking this bit by having security with him. 
uh, and he's mocking Goldberg here, of course, because that was his famous entrance. But instead of using real security, he looks for something he can have fun with. And he debates using like local wrestlers, but instead he meets a guy that really became a big part of the act. Tell us about what you remember about Jericho personal security and Ralphus. I think Ralphus worked on a ring crew and you know, my, my recollection of it, it was vague, but it was a typical Chris Jericho thing. Hey, Eric, I got an idea. I want to talk to you about it. Full of energy, full of passion and laid it out and we did it. We might've done it at a house show. He may have tried it, you know, at a house show and it got over, um, and everybody got behind it because it was the kind of thing that Chris was good at. It was, we, we had seen it, that kind of parody humor, smart ass kind of smarmy heel was in his nature. And Ralphus was a goofy looking guy. He was an entertaining character and he loved doing it. Ralphus loved being that character so much. It made it interesting. He took it as serious. He took it as seriously as any actor would have taken it. And which is one of the reasons it worked. He loved it. So I, you know, again, as I've done, you know, the last half of the show, um, tip of the hat to Chris, I guarantee it wasn't Kevin Sullivan's idea. It wasn't my idea. Um, maybe Terry Taylor, maybe cause Terry had that, that kind of, uh, he, he could do some funny shit. He could, he could come up with some funny things once in a while. So I'll give it a 15% chance uh, of that being a Terry Taylor idea. But I, I'd say 85% chance that was all Chris Jericho. There's a fun bit here on the September 10th Thunder where he's working with Wrath. And they're doing the gimmick where Ralphus is knocking on the door. Eventually, they're trying to do something with the door. And it accidentally gets caught on camera when things don't go exactly according to planned and Jericho and wrath are both caught laughing on live TV. The camera catches it. Uh, any sort of blowback on that or is it clearly an accident and what are you going to fucking do? It's live TV. You know what? There was no blowback and, and things like that never bothered me. Right. And I know this is going to sound, you know, bizarre to people, but when I launched Nitro, one of the things that I felt the most strongly about was that it be live because I knew shit would happen just like that that would make the show feel different. And it, it could be anything. It could be the lights, the power going out in the middle of a mat. It could be anything. But it's what makes live television. I used to say this, and, I, and I'm going to really quit you know, dropping all the F-bombs, but I get excited and I drink all this Urban Mate tea and I get all jacked up and half the time you're pushing my buttons. So I'm going to blame it on you. Sure. But, but I used to tell in the very beginning, I, I you know, I said to Brad Siegel, why do you want to go live? It costs more money to go live than it does to do tape, which isn't really true by the way, because there's no post-production on a live show and post-production is what really can bog you down badly. But I, and I told Brad in the very beginning Flea's fucking live is interesting. 
not everything that you watch on tape is really that because when you watch something live, you never, you, it's happening now. It's really happening and anything can happen. And that was the, the core vibe, if you will, that I wanted to establish in Nitro is that shit happens. Sometimes it's great shit. And sometimes it's like you just described. So for me personally, if I'd have been sitting back watching it on a manor, monitor, I would have busted out laughing. Vince McMahon might've killed somebody. But that's just, you know, the difference between the way we look at things. I think live TV should have flaws, just like a good character should have a flaw. But I would have laughed my ass off seeing that. Let's talk about uh, an incident he had with Scott Hall here. He wrote about it in his book, and he says that really he had been a bit of a dick for a while. And who's he? Who's he, he being Scott on. Hall. He says pronouns, pal, pronouns. Thank you. <laughs> You should have that down by now. Quote, it was no secret that Hall enjoyed being a dick. And he said on more than one occasion, they pay me to wrestle, not to make friends. And it doesn't say anywhere in my contract that I have to be nice to anyone. This is the wrestling business, not the friendship business. Well, allegedly, uh, Hall's sort of badgering him one night and he gets sick of it and finally stands up for himself. And Hall says something like, you got something to say, Jericho, don't sing it, bring it. I'll put an end to your little Terry Taylor push. And Jericho says that pissed him off huge because he'd worked his ass off for that little Terry Taylor push. And he was be damned if somebody was going to mock him. Well, then Scott Norton comes over, looks him in the eye, him being Jericho and says, you better shut his mouth right now, because if you don't stand up to him, I will. And you'll look like a pussy. So Jericho goes and stands up and says, leave me the fuck alone. Next time you mess with me, I'm coming at you. Understand? And Hall looks at him in disbelief and says, I don't have a problem with you, dude. Come on, man. Everything's cool. And he sort of says, this is just classic bully fashion and was typical of Scott Hall. This is 98. Everybody knows you had your situations with Hall. Is that about par for course for him in 98? Absolutely. That's a shame. It is. It, it, it really is. And I can, I mean, again, as you describe that, you know, you're reading Chris's book, that's a scene that I can visualize as you're laying it out to me. It, it, it's almost like a movie I've seen a hundred times. It all came about during that period of time. Scott was a, Scott was a wreck and he would, he would push people's buttons and he could turn on a dime. I don't want to suggest that he was bipolar. I'm not a doctor uh, or a psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever it would be. But if he wasn't, he, he, he sure did a good imitation because one day you could just be the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And then 24 hours later, he would pull something exactly like you just described. It was not a good time. Let's talk about fall brawl 1998. This is where Jericho beat a fake bill Goldberg in a minute and 15 seconds. This is directly from the observer. It was all comedy. First Jericho was walking around lost backstage, trying to get to the ring then Goldberg's music played and a guy who looked to be about five foot two came out who I believe is either a Georgia indie wrestler who uses the name CC Deviline or sometimes jobber Johnny attitude. And since he's just recently gotten his head shaved and got a Goldberg tattoo on his arm, this was perfect. Um, what do you remember about this? It, it's a, a half a star match. Of course, it's not supposed to be a real match, but Meltzer ranks everything here. The fake Bill Goldberg match on pay-per-view. How does this come to be? 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah, you ask me these questions all the time. You know, whose idea was that? How did that happen? The answer is, I, I'm, it was a collaboration. It was probably a Chris Jericho idea that got to Kevin or Terry that probably got talked about, laid out. Then it was probably brought to me, and I probably went, ah, okay. It's consistent with, with, with what Chris was doing. It was a parody. It was comedic. It was some smart-ass shit. It was very, very consistent with a lot of the things that were working with Chris, so I wouldn't have seen any reason not to do it. However, I will tell you that it didn't go over all that well with Bill. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get to. <laughs> it was the beginning. It was the beginning. I may not remember who's that, who stood up in the room and went, hey, uh, me, 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 me. Well, I got an idea. Let's do this. That I can't remember. But I do remember Taylor. the reaction it got. Before you get to the reaction, let me tell you, Chris wrote in his book that it was Terry Taylor who told him he'd be wrestling Goldberg. And at the time, he's TV champion. We should remind you that Goldberg here is, of course, the world champion. And when he finds out he's working Goldberg, he thinks it's strange that he's going to be in a three minute throwaway match like this on pay-per-view when he's the TV champion. But Terry explained, no, you're not facing the real Goldberg, but a quote unquote midget version of him instead. And he asked him why. And he said, no reason. I just thought you'd have some fun with it. So that was sort of the idea is WCW, at least Terry Taylor had sort of realized, Hey, we're doing comedy here. Let's double down on the comedy. But I get that in hindsight, maybe Bill didn't see the humor and probably blamed Jericho for some of this. Tell us what Bill's reaction was to this uh, Goldberg squash here for Jericho. He, he was he was hot. He was hot. I mean, I I, I got an earful and a faceful. <laughs> I mean, he was in my face. He was hot. And again, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff twenty odd years later, but. At that time, remember, again, put it in context, how green Bill Goldberg was Right. at that time. Bill came into a shark tank. Right. And he, he got over, other than The Rock, you know, or, or, yeah, other than The Rock, nobody's gotten over as fast, as big as Bill Goldberg at that time. And it was a lot for him. He didn't have a decade you know, or more's worth of wrestling political experience. He didn't have a comfort level with the formula and, and could predict how the audience would take things. Um, so he was really easily tipped over, especially when you had guys who were fucking with him. When you had a Scott Hall in his ear going, bro, I don't know why they're, man, I wouldn't let them do that to me. And I'm not saying Scott did that, but that type of thing was very typical. Or any number of other people that were in his ear and influencing him because he didn't have his own basis of knowledge and experience to rely upon. Or Hulk Hogan would have pulled him aside. And Hulk would have pulled him aside and said, hey, Bill, just telling you. I would have never let them do something like that to Hulk Hogan when Hulk Hogan was first getting over. That Something like that would make Bill go up in flames. So you can imagine how Bill reacted to that. And he reacted and, the next day in Greenville, South Carolina. He says he saw, Jericho wrote, I saw Goldberg in the backstage area. He came up to me with fire in his eyes and a defiant grin and said, well, Jericho, I hope it was worth it. He asked what he meant. And he says, people have been calling me all day and laughing at me. Well, I don't do the comedy bullshit that you do. And I just want you to know you're going to pay the price for it. 
And Jericho wrote that he's sort of surprised by this. I mean, they both loved hockey. They went to a, a hockey game together. He thought they got along and he thought he would have gotten a kick out of it. But he says, quote, as a result of the backstage vultures that were clouding his brain with manipulation, drooling at the thought of being one to end his streak. Here we are. He says, I just work here, Bill. I wish I had the power to book matches, but I don't. And he sort of stomps off Goldberg does and says, I hope it was worth it. And of course, Jericho is now going to keep this angle going, whether it's his idea or WCW's. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he's bragging in the ring that night on the show that Jericho won Goldberg zero and challenges him to a match. Of course, Goldberg doesn't answer. So he wins by count out and starts saying Goldberg zero Jericho two. And he's no longer calling him Goldberg. He's calling him Greenberg and saying things like, who's your daddy Greenberg? Who's your daddy? And people are really ready for a match here, but it doesn't happen. And he runs into Goldberg at uh, an airport and Goldberg demands. He stopped doing the angle quote. I don't do comedy. And he tried to explain that he's not going to do it and the fans are digging it and he doesn't want to really pull back and WCW allegedly is okay with this. And they're even advertising Goldberg versus Jericho on the September 28th nitro and Goldberg's there and just lays waste to the Jericho security force. And we're sort of not really getting the payoff we imagined with there being some sort of a pay-per-view build or whatever. What's your relationship like with dealing with Goldberg through this process? Is he sort of pushing back on all this? Did you have to talk him off the ledge a few times? What can you tell us? Yes. I had to talk him off the ledge a lot. And the relationship between Bill and I had, had been getting strained uh, up to that point. And again, it's because the stakes were getting higher. There were more people in Bill's ear. He was getting less and less secure because he went out now and, and instead of just going out and eating people, there was more and more story you know, being suggested to him from time to time. It was a very tough time for Bill. It, it just, it was. And now to have this kind of thing happening, I mean, I think anybody else that had been in the business for five or 10 years, I mean, it's Chris was getting him over, right? I mean, he really was. Chris was doing a favor and so was WCW, but Bill didn't have the experience to see it that way. His perspective was all fucked up and it would, he would get absolutely impossible to be around. And of course the match is going to happen. And Jericho wrote in his book that you're the one who breaks the news to him. And when he says, what's the story for the match going to be? You said something like story, the same story Goldberg always tells. He beats you and pins you with a jackhammer in about three minutes. And Jericho says he thought he'd entered the twilight zone. Like the previous six weeks of angles hadn't happened. And he says, what about our angle? The fans are really into it. And you allegedly said there never was an angle. And if there was, it ends tonight. And he's sort of just taken aback by this, that this can't be real, that they've just thrown away all of this, that he felt like was really strong work, but that's the plan on October 8th. Um, there's a, a, a segment on thunder where backstage Jericho slamming on Goldberg's door. Goldberg's not there. And it's announced as if Jericho's going to take on Goldberg later in the show. And Jericho does an interview with, of course, his bodyguard and Tony Schiavone. And then he tells the referee, Mark Curtis to get well. 
and he calls out Goldberg. Goldberg's music plays, but he never shows up. Jericho has the referee put his hand in that in the air and ring the bell as if he were the winner. I mean, it is sort of weird that, you know, the match happens. It's a squash. It's over really before it gets started, but he still continues the angle even after. Is this just too many chefs in the kitchen? How does this thing piss off one of the top talents, but yet we're still playing with it a little bit? And we're not, there's no pay. There's, there's a layer of complexity that wasn't revealed in that book. Um, and we touched on it, you know, Chris Jericho was a heel. He was playing a heel. It was a cool heel and it was an entertaining heel, just like the NWO was in some respects, sometimes in many respects, but he was still a heel. Bill Goldberg was still Bill Goldberg at that point. There was no way that match was going to end any other way. Then the heel poking the bear, getting his heat, poking the bear next week, getting more heat and continuing to get that heat until the bear finally met him in the ring and the heel got beat. Right. That's the formula. Sure. Chris didn't want to do that formula. Chris didn't see it that way. And it became a little, it became an issue. Well, Chris, Chris, Chris wanted a legitimate angle, not a comedic angle, not the one that you just laid out to me. He wanted to be figured in with, with Bill Goldberg in particular at that time. And it, we weren't ready for that yet. Meltzer would even put in here that Goldberg had nixed the idea, even after all the angles that had sort of started it because he just didn't want to do anything with Jericho. And Meltzer would freestyle that Jericho was offered a program with Kidman, but Jericho, Guerrero, and Benoit Malenko were all trying to move away from the cruiserweight division because they didn't want that stigma. And they were putting pressure on guys to sign contracts. This is all directly from the observer. Do you remember, you know, being like, hey, sorry, you can't work with Goldberg, but what about Kidman? No, I don't remember that. Let's talk about Halloween Havoc, 1998. Jericho retains the TV title, beating Raven in seven minutes and 49 seconds. It gets three stars here. Uh, it is sort of, um, I guess it's the, a move in the right direction because he's working with heavyweights, but it does feel a little bit like a consolation prize since he's not with uh, Goldberg, which is what he wanted to do. The very next week on Nitro, November 2nd, uh, he is doing an interview wearing a Goldberg T-shirt, and he's putting over Goldberg and talking about how he used to be a football player. And later in the show, he goes to a draw with Kidman. The next week on Nitro, Jericho does an interview running down Bill Goldberg, and then they show Goldberg arriving at the building, watching Jericho run him down on the monitor. And instead of going out there, he wastes valuable time destroying all the furniture uh, backstage. And when he finally comes out, he wastes Jericho with a tackle on the floor. And, uh, for some reason, as we've talked about, he just didn't want to work the feud and that's allegedly sort of the blow off here. Uh, he gets a win over Prince Iakea a few days later on, uh, thunder and the big meeting about all this Goldberg stuff goes down on November 9th and it happens before nitro. And he says, you're going to lose. He says that you said something like you're going to lose to Goldberg and that's it. And his thinking at the time was, quote, 
I didn't give a shit at that point because no matter what anybody else thought that angle was a moneymaker and I was determined to live or die with it. If WCW didn't take it as far as it could go, I might as well quit anyway. If they didn't see this feud as a draw, then nothing I would ever do in the future would be either quote. I'm not losing tonight. And he says, you said angrily go in my office right now. And he says, you must've suspected that you were going to question the match because Goldberg was already in your office all along with a very pissed off Hulk Hogan. And he says that some serious shit was about to go down. And he says, you said this has gone on long enough. We've accommodated you enough tonight. You're losing to bill. And the three of them wait for my response. I wanted to lose to bill. I just wanted to do it right. And people want to see him kick my ass and they they'll pay to see it. And then he pleads his case to Hogan using language. He knew he'd understand quote. I thought this business was about making money. You've done it better than anyone. Hulk, this match will make money. Hogan didn't disagree, but said it's never bad to lose to the champion. And Jericho says, or Goldberg says, rather, I'm sick of doing this comedy shit. You could never last in the ring with me. I'm the guy who stands in fire for my ring entrance. I'm the guy who beat Hogan for the title. And he says, you're the guy who would go down right now. If I kicked you in the nuts. And so you jump in the middle and say, okay, let's not get carried away. What do you want to do? What's your idea? Do you remember before we keep going here, this three-way meeting and that basically being how it got started or is Jericho using some creative license here? I remember the night. I remember the debate. Um, if Chris says Hulk was in the room, you know, I, I can't remember clearly enough to suggest he wasn't, it would make sense. So I tend to believe that, that Hulk was there. Remember, you know, as I said earlier on, Bill was very insecure when he was very confident in himself in every way, except for psychology, uh, when it came to the wrestling business. So he ended up leaning on certain people. Hulk Hogan was clearly one of them, especially by that time. Hulk Hogan, by that time, had introduced his own attorney, Henry Holmes, to Bill. So Hulk was kind of taking Bill under his wing, so to speak. So it makes sense that, that Hulk would have been there. Um, so we'll take Chris's version of how that all went down as being 100% accurate. And I do remember the tension that occurred that night, however it went down word for word. Um, but keep in mind you know, one of the issues that I had personally, and one of the reasons why I didn't fight harder um, to support Chris is because Bill wasn't capable of going out and having the kind of match that Chris wanted to have. Right. right. Bill was still Bill Goldberg. That match was going to be a clusterfuck. Yeah. A, because Bill just didn't have the experience and B, because of the way Bill was wired. Bill would have gone out there so tense and so tight and so pissed off that I don't know how, you know, as talented as Chris Jericho was, um, I think he was overestimating his own abilities based on his desire to, to do what he wanted to do. Because I don't think he could have gone out there and had a match that he would have been proud of with Bill Goldberg. There was a lot of reasons why that match wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't all because I didn't believe in Chris. It just wasn't the right match. So Jericho says that, you know, you guys say, well, Hey, what's your fucking idea? And he lays it out. Okay. I'm going to come out here and trash him. And Oakland's going to say, you know, we, everybody knows bill's not here, but then bill shows up 
at on the Tron comes down, spears him down the aisle exactly as it was. And that sets up a match at the pay-per-view and he loses at the pay-per-view. He just wanted to work with Goldberg on the pay-per-view and allegedly everybody likes the idea, but Goldberg says something like that's all well and good, but I'm supposed to have the next pay-per-view off. So instead the, uh, the plan is world war three. And instead of Goldberg working with Chris Jericho, Jericho works with Bobby Duncan Jr. 13 minutes and 19 seconds. What would have been the harm in having the blow off happen at World War Three instead of having Jericho work with Bobby Duncan fucking Jr.? Did the blow off ever happen? Just the spear down the aisle. And that was it. I'll go back to what I just said. You know, you're asking a question two different ways or three different ways. I told you earlier on, there's just no way that that match was ever going to happen. Bill wasn't capable but, I mean, of having – it's really – go ahead. Why go not ahead. squash? I mean, why not just book the standard – everybody know. I mean, we all know he's going to get squashed. Like, the expectation was not a 20-minute match, but a fucking squash. Do you think Jericho would have did, – did, did Chris ever say that to you? Or, I mean, not to you, but is is there any – in his book, did Chris say – all I want to do is go out and get squashed in a pay-per-view. No, he wanted a match. He wanted an angle with bill. He wanted to get in the ring and have a match with bill. He got squashed and you he know, wasn't happy with that. Allegedly, let me, let me correct that. He does say, and then we wrestle at world war three and he destroys me in the most entertaining squash match of all time. But still, yeah. you're saying that's not really what he was saying. He wanted a real it's, fucking match. It, it, and it just was the chemistry wasn't there between those two. Right. It just wasn't there. And that, by the way, it's not, you know, Bill being a bitch and Chris being wrong or me, you know, pandering to Bill or Hulk stirring up shit. There are times when certain talents don't match. The chemistry isn't right. Ric Flair, Rick Root. I mean, there are times. There are people. They just don't work well together. And given what had gone down with Bill and Chris in the comedy, which wasn't Chris's fault, he was doing what he was asked to do. Um, Bill overreacted to it. But it doesn't matter. It, this, the chemistry wasn't there. He says that the fact that he couldn't even get a pay-per-view squash with Goldberg showed him that WCW didn't really see him as a moneymaker or a big league player. And his attitude about the company sort of started to become quote the same as when you call a girl 10 times and she never calls you back you start you start off hoping she'll call then you get bummed out then desperate then you realize it's time to move on and give up had he called me back any time before the goldberg angle was kiboshed i would have signed but the moment i found out that the angle was shit canned i wasn't interested in being part of wcw no mo of course the day i found out the angle had been dropped like a baby was the day eric showed up with a contract for me to sign he took it out of his little knapsack and told me to sign it on the spot. I hemmed and hawed and told him I needed to have a lawyer look over it first. Once I made up my mind to not sign the deal, I called Vince Russo. I told him that I wanted out and he suggested a meeting with Vince McMahon himself. So he made arrangements for me to fly to Connecticut in a top secret meeting at Vince's house. In the weeks leading up to the meeting, I avoided Bischoff like he had leprosy or was a cruiserweight. If he was walking down the hall, I duck, dip, dive and dodge into a nearby dressing room. He wasn't stupid, and I'm sure he must have suspected something was amiss. Finally, he called up with me in Chicago at the United Center, and the first words out of his mouth were, have you signed your contract yet? I started, well, my lawyer still hasn't, and he interrupted me to say, get it back from your lawyer and get it signed next week. He was on to me, and the jig was up. 
What do you remember about, you know, him sort of playing hokey pokey with signing a contract here and it seemingly happening at the same time as this Goldberg situation? It probably was happening at the same time, but I didn't get, I, I didn't, I don't think I would have, you know, I don't want to call Chris a liar. I'm not doing that, but it is, it would be a hundred percent uncharacteristic of me to pull a contract out, put it in somebody's face and say, now sign it. Right. No, nobody did that. Right. Nobody did that. Nobody did it. And I certainly wouldn't have expected Chris to do it. So right off the bat, I'm kind of throwing a flag on that one. Um, just the way it started out. Uh, I do remember being pretty anxious. I do remember being concerned because we had plenty of conversations. It was clear to me that Chris didn't get what Chris wanted. Chris wanted that pay-per-view match with Bill Goldberg. He felt he deserved it. He felt that it was money. It's what he wanted for himself. He believed, I'm sure, that it was good for the company, and he didn't get what he wanted. And I knew he was, I knew he was unhappy and I suspected that he was going to leave. So I would say 80% of everything that, that he laid out in that book is probably pretty accurate. The part I'm not going to buy is that I pulled a contract out of my knapsack and said, here, sign it. That I'm not buying that or, or that I expected to have it, you know, two days later or three days later. And I'm, and again, I'm, I'm not to sound like a pussy, but it, it just every time I hear Chris, you know, and I'm sure, you know, maybe he, Chris and I have talked about a lot of things in the last couple of years that we both, you know, look back and reflect on and going, holy shit. You know, we kind of palm ourselves in the forehead, you know, thinking about some of the things that we've said and done. Um, and we both have a much different perspective on things now than we did 20 years ago. But it still kind of bothers me to hear Chris, even if it was five or 10 years ago, shit all over the cruiserweights. By saying something like I avoided him like a cruiserweight because I, I just, you know, that's like me being pissed off at Vern Gagne for giving me an opportunity to get into the wrestling business. Right. I just don't get that. That That's that's a that's a level of disrespect that I just can't relate to. He talks about his meeting with Vince McMahon. He gets picked up um, and he's thinking he's getting the old Vince McMahon treatment. So we're going to fly in first class, pick you up in a limo. He flies him coach, which surprises him, but he does have a limo driver pick him up and he's got a name on the placard that says Robinson, which is a code name that Russo had given him. And then they drive him to the woods of Connecticut. They finally make it to Vince's house. Shane answers the door and Jericho's sort of prepping to try to make sure he looks like what Vince might want. He's wearing a skin tight shirt. He's got boots on that have lifts in them. So he looks a little taller. And he's doing what he can to sort of look like a big guy, which is what he's always been told that Vince likes. And when he gets to the sunken living room, he sees an oil painting of Vince over the mantle and everybody's there. Jim Ross, Vince Russo, Ed Ferrara, and Bruce Pritchard. And of course the, the head of the table is Vince McMahon himself. And they sort of, you know, catch up briefly and then have lunch that Vince had ordered in and then go for a walk. And he describes being in Vince's presence. Is unlike anything else he'd been, you know, around in the wrestling business before. He said he's trying to compare him to you here, and he says it was like comparing a king to a court jester. How would you make his comparison? And Vince McMahon does have a presence about him. I think everybody who has ever met him would agree with that. 
I don't know how much of that is by design and how much of that is just out of respect from us as wrestling fans, but it's certainly something that you can't deny. But when he sort of compares Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff as a king and a court jester, how would you respond to that? Well, I don't think anybody that would ever meet, um, especially going back to 1997, 1998, would have ever confused. Uh, let me just put it this way. If both Vince and I were in a lineup, um, nobody would ever confuse one for the other. Right. Um, I didn't try to pretend to be something that I wasn't. Um, never have, actually. And, and never will. Um, I don't have an oil painting of myself you know, in my dining room, I don't portray that type of, of, of a person. It's not important to me. So I'm sure there was a very distinct, and I know there is, I've been, I've I've been around Vince. I get it. Um, I am a completely different person. And if, 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 you know, Chris kind of felt the need to write that in, in a derisive way and, you know, uh, take a shot at me, so be it. He's writing a book. He's got to do what he's got to do. If he really felt that way, so be it. Um, I don't, I'm a pretty confident person in myself and, and who I am. And I, you know, I don't really take offense to it. Disappointed that Chris felt the need to take a shot because I still feel like I, I was responsible in many ways for Vince or excuse me, for Chris to even have an opportunity to fly and coach and wear a tight shirt, put lifts in his shoes to be some, to try to pretend he was somebody that he really wasn't. I gave him that opportunity. Um, and to, and to feel like he has to take a shot in his book along the way to help get himself over. That's okay. (sighs) He describes the meeting as a total smoke and mirror show designed to impress him. And it worked. He says the whole experience was surreal. And he wrote in his book, as far as I know, Eric never found out about the secret meeting unless he's reading this book. Sorry, Eric. And he says he was on a mission, he being you, to have you sign, have him sign that contract. And finally, he breaks the news that he's not going to. And he says, truth be told, I felt bad about my decision because my word had always been my bind, and I felt like I was going back on it. But I did feel justified in my actions by telling myself that since he'd taken five months to get back to me about the contract, he was in breach of our verbal agreement. I know I'm grasping at straws here, but if you're going to say I went back on my word, there should at least be an asterisk. And he says, when you finally have this meeting, you're furious quote, you can't do that. What's wrong with you? We have a deal. You can't go back on your word. What do you remember about this? And obviously the result is going to be, uh, you saying something like, well, if you won't sign, it's like losing your ticket at the Chinese dry cleaner, no ticky, no laundry. I wasn't exactly sure what that meant until Jimmy Hart told me I was losing the TV title to Conan on nitro that night in Chattanooga. What do you remember about the meeting and the no ticky, no laundry? Cause I do feel like no ticky, no laundry is a fucking shirt at ericbischoff.com. <laughs> you know, here's the, the only thing that I guess I'd throw a flag on is I, I wasn't furious. I, I mean, I, I was disappointed and I did, you know, I think I offered Chris and this is, you know, I, I think I offered him a half a million bucks close to it to stay. I mean, I really wanted him to stay, but I wasn't surprised and I wasn't furious. 
I might have given him the no ticky, no laundry thing. Um, that sounds like something I would say. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty fucking stupid, I know. But, um, but I, you know, I do. I will take exception to being furious. Um, I, I, I wasn't. I was disappointed, but I wasn't furious. You know what? Just the that entire scene is hilarious to me. No, Eric, I'm sorry. I'm not going to sign. I'm going to go work for Vince. Oh, yeah? Well, fuck you. You're losing the TV title to Conan and goddamn Chad of fucking Nuga. No ticky, no laundry, Chris Jericho. It's hilarious. <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down like that, trust Jimmy me. Jimmy Hart, get that fucking belt off this kid. No ticky, <laughs> no laundry. Hey, Conan, where the fuck is K-Dog? You're the new TV champ, you fucker. It's hilarious to me. Let's think about something else that's absurd to me. Chris wrote, <laughs> well, that's not absurd enough. What the hell? What do you want? You want to take a ride to the Twilight Zone? Let's My get God. better. Allegedly, fucking Ralphus was trying to negotiate a contract. Supposedly, I'll get the fuck out of here now. <laughs> now you're making shit up. No. Oh, God. Either you are or Meltzer is. I'm being serious. This is directly from his book. Well, then he's making it up. He was on a roll. He was laughing his ass off, writing his shit, and decided he was going to make it really funny. Ralph was, come on. Come on, Jericho. Now I'm pissed. Now I'm pissed. He began talking about hiring a lawyer to negotiate his new contract. New contract? The moron didn't have an old contract. I had to go to bat for him to get him 500 bucks on appearance as it was. And then he started showing up at house shows, quote, in case he was needed. The first night he was cheered so huge, it killed all my heel heat. And I had to tell him to stop coming. Sadly, Ralphus was over the most of the baby faces. Did you have any interactions with Ralphus at all? No, That's it, but, but I do find it interesting that Chris had to finally admit that Ralphus was more over than he was, but that God, listen to you. you're fired up today. I love it. No, but I love to have fun. Look, man, this is a tennis match. I'm not going to stand here on the edge of the fucking uh, tennis court with my racket in my hand getting served fastballs between the eyes. you got to let me grab my racket and, and play. Uh, he Come said, on. He says he's, he, he being uh, Chris Jericho, turns to Kevin Nash, of all people, for help because he hears that there was an agent involved in the deal they cut with WCW. So he first comes in contact with Barry Bloom. And it's another secret meeting, but he says this one is the smartest movie could have made. He says, Barry orchestrated a full foolproof plan for my escape and played Eric like a temperamental fiddle. At first, Eric refused to deal with him due to previous bad blood. So Barry had me hire a lawyer in Atlanta named John Taylor. John had fought against WCW in the past and Bischoff was reluctant to deal with him too, but I hit Bischoff in the hornet's nest with a stick and he was furious. He was prepared for him to make the remainder of my time in the company a living hell. And surprisingly, he didn't. Tell me about your relationships with Barry Bloom and John Taylor and how or why any of that was really not your deal. That was way, way more colorful than the facts were. Um, He's right about Barry Bloom. Um, In my opinion, Barry was, you know, he betrayed a trust and a friendship. Um, he went against his word. We've covered that before. I'm not going to beat it up any longer. I didn't and, and to this day. I, I mean, I have, I've had one conversation with Barry in the last 20 years that I can recall. Um, and it had to do with Bill Goldberg for another television project that I was going to do about a year ago that had nothing to do with wrestling, but that was it. 
you know, if it came to the wrestling business, I won't deal with, with Barry Bloom ever. Um, enough of that. Um, but he did bring John Taylor in and I had a great relationship with John Taylor. Can I, uh, I really did. Can I give you uh, a scoop here that you might not believe? Sure. Barry Bloom listens to this podcast. I don't give a fuck. No, I'm not saying you're going to change what you're saying. I'm just saying what a fucking small world it is. Hey, Barry, Eric shitting on you. Roll Tide. No, I'm not shitting. I'm just telling the truth. Uh-huh. And he knows I'm telling the truth. I'm just having fun. But, but he, you know, I, it wasn't this big Machiavellian super move and Barry Bloom pay, playing me like a fiddle. You know, I'm sure Barry, you know, suggested get, get, get an attorney, John Taylor. John Taylor was in Atlanta. John Taylor did work with the WWE, but I had a really good, even though it was, you know, kind of adversarial from time to time, John Taylor and I ended up being pretty good friends. John Taylor ended up rep- representing me at a certain point because we had that kind of a relationship. So there was no big mastermind, super fucking manager move. It was just, you know, a, 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 the series of events that took place. Chris wanted to leave. I didn't want him to go. I tried to keep him. I offered him a lot of money. He was determined to leave and he left. There was no, there was nothing more dramatic or colorful to it than that. Let's talk about Starcade 1998. We get Conan beating Chris Jericho here in seven minutes and 27 seconds. I told him no ticky, no laundry. There you go. Damn. I needed that. Two and a quarter stars. Let's roll into 1999. Um, they're working an angle here pretty early in the year, January 11th, where Jericho attacks Perry Saturn and puts a dress on him. And that sets up the match that sold out Jericho versus Saturn. The loser has to wear the dress for 90 days. You would think considering Jericho's on his way out and allegedly had a bit of a falling out with Bischoff, he himself would lose and have to wear the dress. Not so Perry Saturn loses. Meltzer gives it three quarters of a star. Why not put Jericho in a fucking dress here? Because Perry really, really liked the dress. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the fucking line of the show right there. Uh, Chris says I wrestled a battle Royal. This happens on a uh, beach brawl for MTV on January 21st. And it's in, can Cancun. you see Perry right now with that one boogly eye? I can in a, in a, in a nice little prom dress, kind of one of those, boot, I don't know what they call them. Maybe a ring skirt, kind of like the old fashioned style. And then Perry look at you with that bald eye and a tattoo going up the side of his neck with that one boogly eye. It's crazy. <laughs> Uh, Chris says he wrestled in this battle Royal for MTV at spring break in Cancun. And he says, I won and I went out drinking for 14 straight hours with the host, a relative unknown named kid rock in celebration only in WCW. Could you get a bigger push when you were leaving the company, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, he finds out right after all of this, that he's failed the WCW drug testing policy and the banned substance that was found in the system was, uh, Andrew, which was involved in Mark McGuire's supplement of choice, of course, at the time. And it's in a lot of stuff, even something he bought at GNC in the mall. And he says, quote, the fix was in as penance. I had to attend a steroid counseling session with the company quack in Atlanta with two other wrestlers, Lenny Lane and Bobby blaze. Lenny was about my size and Bobby was built like you. I keyed. None of us were typical poster boys for rampant steroid abuse. Although I was a sexy beast and worked out hard, but it was strange that the three of us had been targeted while so many others in WCW who had practically neon signs on for it. 
it is sort of weird timing. And this is one of those old deals in wrestling where when you're leaving, then you get popped. No, 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 no. I'm not even going to let you go down that path. We didn't administer that test. That test was subcontracted. We had, we were, Harvey Schiller, who was the president of the U.S. Olympic Committee, um, before he came to Turner Broadcasting, set up the drug testing policy at that time with a doctor who administered it to the U.S. Olympics. And the policy and the protocol would never have provided despite the conspiracy theory or the Machiavellian kind of closing chapters of Chris Jericho's WCW book um, that would suggest that that was some kind of a final parting shot. It reads really, really well, but there is no substance to it whatsoever. It's a figment of, of Chris's imagination when he wrote that book. Not saying it didn't happen. Probably did happen. But I am. I mean, our our testing was a mess, just like everybody else's was at that point. The science hadn't really caught up with 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 the challenge. The protocol was was a mess for us, for the WWF, for the NFL, for Major League Baseball, for everybody. So I'm not suggesting we were pristine and bulletproof, um, but to suggest even a little bit that that was a party shot. Nah, throwing a major flag on that one. Super brawl is another rematch. Jericho and Perry Saturn. Uh, surprisingly Jericho wins again, couple stars here, but it's, it's another win for Jericho on his way out. I mean, back in the day when you were leaving the territory, you lose on TV all the time. Why are you sort of going against the grain here? Are you still keeping out hope that maybe you'll be able to convince him to stay or why does he keep winning on pay-per-view like this? I don't know. Can't answer that. Well, he does lose uh, it uncensored. If that makes sense. It's the best of three, maybe on pay-per-view Perry Saturn beats Jericho. there at a dog collar match and it gets only half a star. They didn't Meltzer didn't love the match, but you know, it is not, it's, it's finally something that's not like, um, um, a wearing a dress match. And, Meltzer sort of freestyles that the the decision was not at this point yet concrete. It's written Bischoff had a discussion with Jericho about his future and made it clear WCW wanted to keep him. Despite what you may have heard, at this point WCW has not offered him a new huge money contract, although at some point everyone expects they will. There's been talk in the office, and I'm not sure it's been proposed to Jericho directly, that they would give him a Piper's Pit type segment weekly on Nitro if he were to sign. Those close to him seem to feel he's not 100% in either direction, but probably leaning towards leaving. So although Jericho's sort of saying he's got his mind made up, he's met with Vince, and unless you're offering him a million dollars, he's not staying. No such offer comes, of course. At this point, maybe you didn't know for sure that he was leaving, or had you already sort of thought, well, I could sign him. No, and again, you know, you're, 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 relaying you know facts as they were represented in in jericho's book right we're we're combining that with you know Meltzer freestyling and i would say between the two of them um there's some truth in all of it um the the exact timing of those sequence of all of the events as you're laying them out are probably suspect to a certain degree to a large degree i'm certainly not capable of 
in, in, a, in a definitive, positive way that I believe in myself, arguing the timeline in all of that, I can tell you that there was a period, and I can't remember for the life of me, nor should any reasonable person expect me to, to, to remember, I can't remember exactly when the timing was of, you know, I didn't know about, you know, Jericho's trip obviously to, to WWE. I knew that he wasn't happy as a result of the, the, everything that went down with Goldberg. I knew that there were, there were issues. I knew that he was, he was on the fence. We talked about it. He wasn't hiding anything. It was pretty clear to me where he was going. Um, and I did try, as I said, 20 minutes ago, you know, I was willing and able to offer him a half a million dollars to stay. And I was really hoping he'd take it, but he didn't. Now, where all of those facts kind of fell out within the timeline as you're laying it out, I, you know, I can't tell you. And by the way, neither could Chris and, and Dave Meltzer never knew in the first place. We'll talk about the contract in a minute. I want to I want to wrap up the actual online storyline stuff uh, or on camera storyline stuff. Once they're on Nitro, the the night after this uh, this dog collar match. And uncensored Booker T beats Chris Jericho and Jericho sprains his ankle here. So he's out of the ring for a little bit. We fast forward to April 5th and there is a U.S. title tournament and Booker T beats Chris Jericho here. And that's the last time we're going to see Jericho on WCW TV. Jericho wrote when Eric realized I wasn't going to resign my contract, he suspended me from appearing on TV. That darn suspension really taught me a lesson especially since I received every penny of my weekly paycheck in the process. See, okay, I'm going to stop you right there because that's, that's the kind of bullshit narrative that guys like Chris Jericho have, have used in the past to get themselves over. From my point of view, why would I put a guy on television that I know I'm not, he's not, he, I have, I'm, he's, there's nowhere to go with him. There's no story to tell with him. I'm not going to put him on TV just to beat him. I never believed in that. If I knew somebody was going and I knew there wasn't a way to tell a good story or at least attempt to tell a good story with a character because I knew he was on his way out the door and not committed, I'm not going to put him on TV, period, end of conversation. But it had nothing to do with anything other than there was no suspension. It was simply he was gone. I had There was nowhere to go with him, and there was no reason to give him television real estate. That's it. Anything else is Chris trying to put himself over. He does sort of say that basically he says Eric, however, had had enough of me and felt it was best for Chris Jericho to just disappear from WCW. My name was never mentioned and I was never seen on nitro again. It was probably the right decision as no matter what form of burial he might've thought of, I would have just taken it and gotten more over in the long run. Anyway, WCW had taught me the valuable lesson of taking any scrap of TV time given to you and using it to make an impression. Let's talk about the contract. He does say that the WWF's contract offer was a three-year deal at $450,000 a year. And it had this intricate system of bonuses based on attendance and pay-per-view buys. And if you worked hard in the company and succeeded, you were rewarded and made more money. He says during all the years he was there, he never made less than double his guarantee, sometimes triple. In the meantime, WCW had up their offer to her with bonuses had almost reached that magical seven figure mark, but it was too late. He says, quote, even though the WWF was offering half the money, I would have agreed to a bag of used hockey pucks to work for Vince. All the bullshit I experienced in WCW had drained my love for wrestling and I wanted it back. 
In hindsight, do you think the tipping point in all of this is the Goldberg situation? Yep. If you had yep. it to do over again, would you have done anything any differently? I may have handled it differently. I've been, I may have perhaps been tried to have been more diplomatic about it. Um, but fuck, even in hindsight, Bill was Bill Goldberg at that time was not capable of having the kind of match that Chris Jericho wanted to have. Chris Jericho wanted to be in that Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Randy Savage category. And he wasn't. And it's not that he wasn't as talented. He was in many ways more talented. But when you had a roster as deep as I had that was working as well as it was, you can't just insert somebody because they want to be inserted. No matter how bad Chris wanted it, he wasn't ready for it, and we weren't ready for it. We really weren't. And I'm going to tell you an interesting story. It's a conversation that Chris and I had probably a year and a half or two years ago. And and hopefully Chris won't be too hot after he hears this because I am calling bullshit on some of this stuff. And, I, you know, it doesn't bother me really because I know that Chris wrote this book a while back. And I know that Chris is going back and writing about feelings he had at that time. But a lot of the feelings that he had at that time were not necessarily justified. They didn't really – have a 360 degree perspective. There were Chris Jericho's perspective, right? And he really probably felt that way, but a little one-sided if you will. But Chris and I were talking maybe a year or two ago and we talked about, you know, the transition when he left WCW and he thought he was absolutely ready and he was going to fit right into WWE. And he realized very early that he wasn't nearly as over or nearly as ready as he thought he was. Once he got that opportunity, he realized, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to put words in Chris's mouth, um, but my the, the way I interpreted it was Chris telling me that, you know, when you're young, when you're hungry, when you want something so badly, you think you're ready until you get that opportunity and you find out you're really not. Or you recognize how much work you have to do to really get ready. And in the context of the conversation Chris and I were having, it was really about the difference in the WWE style and the w, WCW style, if there was one. But the WWE has a very unique style and expectation of talent. And Chris thought he was ready for it and found out he wasn't. Not nearly as ready as he thought he was. And I and I think that that perspective that he had, you know, 20 years later was probably an accurate perspective, even from my point of view back then. And now it, it, compound that challenge by the fact that the guy that he wanted to have a match with in an angle that ended up on a pay-per-view, which by the way, you know, he, he did want to have more of a match from what I recall. He did want it to be more of a story than just a squash because we had that opportunity and it wasn't good enough. He wanted more, but Bill Goldberg wasn't the right dance partner. That was it. Let's, uh, and there's nothing. And there's nothing in 2020 hindsight. There's nothing I could have done back then to change that fact. Right. To answer your question, what would I have done? Would I have put fucking Bill Goldberg in a time machine and given him 20 years worth of experience? Would I have gotten into his head and hired a couple shrinks and talked him off the ledge and made him really excited to get into a match with a guy that had been dumping heat on him for six or seven weeks, comedic or not? Right. 
yeah, if I could have done any of those things, I would have done it differently, but they weren't really within my reach. Jericho made $50,590 in 1996. He started on uh, in August of 96 In 97. He made $164,496 in 1998. He made $240,358. And in 99, he made $175,116. Uh, so he was, his income was certainly rising, but he wound up going and getting a raise in the WWF and the rest ATM, of ATM Vince <laughs> fucker would do anything in the world. He would spend whatever money he had to spend to get WCW talent. He had to take a star that I made in Chris Jericho and pay him three times more money. He was so desperate. That he had to pay him millions, where, as you just pointed out, I was getting by with low six figures because I was more prudent with my cash. But not Vince McMahon, not big, bad billionaire Ted. He had to try to put WCW out of business by stealing my talent and spending any amount of money he could possibly spend on him. How's that for fucking narrative? I love you for that. That is the best. I almost want to end it right there, but we promised we were going to take some questions. Let's rapid fire some and let's get out of here. I don't know that we're going to beat that. Matthew wants to know, Eric, you seem to be a person who appreciates someone who takes risks and has a set of balls. Did you ever consider Jericho as a top tier guy or did you have to weigh the pros and cons of the Hogan's halls and Nash's? Basically, was there someone other than Goldberg that you felt like would push and not that you could push and not get heat with the top boys? I pushed the guys that made money. Bill Goldberg was making money. Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall were making money. If we go back and we look at 96 and 97 and 98 and even early 1999, those guys were making money for us. So there was no reason to insert um, underneath guys and force guys into uh, an upper deck or an upper card where that was already too crowded. We were already top-heavy with top talent that was making money. So it wasn't about taking risks and being afraid of upsetting any of the other boys. That's just Dave Meltzer narrative for the most part, but it, 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 it wasn't my reality then. Uh, Tom, Tom has a pretty fun question here. Hypothetically, if, if Jericho would have stayed, what would the plans have been? I don't do hypotheticals. You know, Meltzer sort of freestyled that maybe one of the ideas was that he might get a Piper's Pit type segment on Nitro. Was that ever discussed to the best of your recollection? No. Dave wants to know, was there any heat between you and Jericho over him having nicer hair? I was a little jealous. I've always wanted to be blonde. And that wave in his hair, particularly when it gets a little bit longer and falls just gently, just below the shoulder. (laughs) And if you see him in the sunlight, oh, my God. Uh, Francis wants to know who came up with Jericho's WCW theme. Was that Jimmy Hart? Oh, could have been, could have been Jimmy. Jimmy came up with a lot of the music. Sometimes we would muse, use music that was part of the Turner music library. Right. We would find, you know, Jimmy more than likely it was Jimmy would pull, you know, a dozen or two dozen songs that kind of, in Jimmy's opinion, fit the character and then sit down with the talent and kind of go through it. So that was, I would guess that's the process. Mike wants to know who did Eric think had the best matches with Jericho and WCW? Benoit. Ben wants to know what did Eric think of uh, Jericho's WWE debut? 
I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Um, Nashad wants to know, uh, do you feel Jericho had more of an impact as a cruiserweight or a main event star? Cruiserweight. Uh, Bobby wants to know, what did Eric see as Jericho's quote unquote ceiling when he first saw him? I didn't look at, I didn't think of his ceiling. I looked at him as a, as a, a great fit and somebody that was, um, cast properly into the cruiserweight division and the cruiserweight division was something that I had just as much enthusiasm and excitement for and belief in as anything that I had at the top of the card. Um, I, I think that that's, that's the thing that, you know, throughout this whole interview, uh, or show that's, it's the one thing that kind of gets in my craw more than any, even more than some of Dave Meltzer's silly horseshit is that, you know, to disrespect something that, you know, the wrestling fans today hold in very high regard. Most, most of the, the, the talent that I talk to now looking back, hold in very high regard. So, you know, when I say I looked at Chris as an important part of the cruiserweight division for me is just as important as saying, I looked at Chris as a guy who could have been in a main event, because to me, the cruiserweight division was just as important as the main event. In some cases, more important, which is why I put it on the middle of the show, because I needed to hold the audience, and I knew that they could. If that's not a vote of confidence for a division and the people in it, I don't know what is. David wants to know, the Monday Night Jericho shirt is still popular today. How were Jericho's merch sales back then? They were horseshit, like we talked about. We didn't have a good merchandising infrastructure. We didn't have retailers. We didn't have licensees. We didn't have anything, and here's and and I know it's it's easy to to want to knock WCW for that because that's kind of what the fashion was at the time because that's how guys got themselves over when they left. Right. But if you think about the business of the wrestling business, and I'm going to bore you to death, and this has been about a three and a half hour show, it feels like. But here's. Here, here was the reality then. I don't know what it's like now because I'm clearly not in the business at this point. But back then, just because we got hot in 96 and 97 and 98, licensees, they don't like jump on you. Oh, my God, you got really good ratings last Monday. Let's go do a licensing deal with you. Your big companies, and we, all, we eventually we got them. In 1998, I landed um, – Electronic Arts for a video game, $10 million guarantee, half of it up front. I still got the jacket they gave me the day I closed the deal. (laughs) But, you know, eventually we got some of those big licensing and merchandising deals in 98 based on the success that we started in 96. But in 96 and 97, we couldn't get anybody to do a licensing deal with us. There were no toy companies that, that mattered that wanted to do a deal with us. Nobody that wanted to do business with us in 96 and 97, even in early 1998, were generating the kind of money that mattered. And as a result of not having a licensing and merchandising infrastructure in place, because before I took over the company, there was absolutely no licensing and merchandising. There was not even, there wasn't a need to create an infrastructure because there was no revenue to flow through it. So by the time we actually got hot enough to begin starting to see some of that money. The wheels were already falling off in 99. And that's the unfortunate part about that. 
But when I when I talk about WCW not having the infrastructure, it's not because they were completely incompetent. It's not because nobody wanted it. It's not because nobody gave a shit. It's because it was such an immature company, even though it had been around technically since 1989 or 1990 when Ted Turner bought it out of bank bankruptcy from the Crockett's and renamed it WCW as a business model. It was completely immature. It was almost like a startup only in some cases worse because it had baggage. That was a long winded answer. Wasn't it? It was, but it was worth it. And that's why people are listening. Last question here. Todd wants to know, did you think Chris would reach the levels he did in WWE? No, I didn't. I didn't think that Vince would give Chris as much of an opportunity and take as much of a risk on Chris as he did. It's not that I didn't think Chris had the the talent. I clearly did. But I never would have dreamt or bet that Vince would give him the ball the way Vince did. Well, man, that's our Chris Jericho episode. Stay tuned next week. We're going to bring you Dusty Rhodes. But first, he sort of teased at the top of the show that uh, occasionally you could be wrong. And when you were wrong, well, he said you'd fill us in. What's on your mind, Eric? Well, but but I preface that by saying, but when I'm right, I'll also fight and prove I'm right. And I know you had just so much fun busting my balls last week about what time of day it was when DX showed up at the building. As a matter of fact, I think, now I don't have it written down in front of me, but I saw all of the tweets on my timeline for the last, like, week. It was fucking daylight! (laughs) How many times have I read that in the last 72? It was fucking! Daylight. The best one I saw was when someone said that we should get a sponsorship from NyQuil and DayQuil, and there could be like the NyQuil so you can rest, and then the other side should, you know, the DayQuil could just say it's fucking daytime. That's just great. You know, and I thought about that, and I thought that was really funny. It would make a really good shirt, but then I thought about the irony of this entire situation. Irony. You know what the irony is, Conrad? What's that? You love watches, don't you? I do. Yeah. How did you know that? Oh, I know a lot. I do my research too. Okay. And I was so taken aback by the fact that you busted my balls so fucking effectively. Thank you. And it got over so well with the audience that it made me ponder. That's right. I said ponder. Okay. And I pondered away until I thought to myself, how could I possibly have gotten that one inside out? I mean, I, I admit, and I admitted when we started this show, this stuff all happened 20 years ago. I produced over 6,000 hours of television in my career. I don't know how many pay-per-views. I don't know how many thousands of live events. And it all kind of runs together. So what's really hard for me, unlike some people who live and die by dirt sheets, it's really hard for me sometimes to recall specific moments in time. But even that, because that was such a critical moment, that being the DX invasion and the fact that you just laid waste to me so effectively, I thought, how could I have let that be? So I started pondering and looking back and I went, wait a minute. That, that happened in April of 98. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, sunset was at seven fifty that night, but it doesn't get dark until eight fifty. It's called twilight. Here's what I'm saying. It's still, I was outside at eight fifty Eastern Time. No, it, it the sunset at seven fifty Eastern. It's sunset. It's not dark. All right, I'm with you on that, but that's a clearly a fucking pre-tape. They're not. So what I did? No, part of it was a pre-tape. So then what I did is I'm fucking pondering my ass off. Okay. Is I decided I'm going to call my friend Sean Waltman. Oh. And I'm going to say, Sean, I'm just wondering, because I can't for the life of me imagine how I can recall, even though I know I'm capable of remembering things incorrectly, because after all, it was 20 years ago, and I am as guilty as some people of remembering things the way I want to remember them, but this one feels really fucking vivid to me, and I vividly remember looking down to my left and seeing that others waving like she was on fire trying to get my attention, and I'm thinking, why the fuck would I have done that in the middle of the afternoon? Why wouldn't I have just said, what's up, Yannette? What's on your mind? But I didn't do that. So I called Sean. I said, Sean, Eric. And he said, hey, Eric, hey, I talked to I talked to Conrad today, and I know I said some stuff about you on my show. He goes, but, you know, whatever. You know, I said, Sean, no worries. We're friends. But I got a question for you, Sean. Back when this DX thing happened, when did you do that? And of course, Sean doesn't remember the details, you know, much better than I do. But, but, but I said, now, Sean, our show started at eight o'clock. Yours didn't start till nine. He goes, yeah, I remember we had to hurry up and go do that thing and, and go do your thing because we had to race back and do our show. Uh huh. So it's possible that I do remember this correctly. That you guys did. In fact, it was probably done in parts throughout the day because that's how pre-tapes work. I don't know. Maybe you can talk to Bruce about this. But maybe, just maybe, I'm not saying definitively. I'm not going to go to my grave with it, pounding a table saying it happened. But I'm going to suggest that maybe we do a little more digging. Maybe we talk to Craig Leathers. Maybe I reach out to Doug Dillinger. And by the way, I've got a call into Janie Engel, who lives down in Texas. She talks to Doug. And we're going to find out. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Did the DX invasion happen? Did the guys try to get in the back door of the building while Nitro was taking place? And is my version of how that went down the truth? Or is this a, just another Dave Meltzer bunch of bullshit? We have done a marathon show for you today, but I had fun talking about one of the greats of all time, Mr. Chris Jericho. And this is uh, the last question of the show, and I saved it for a reason. Lots of people have the narrative, as you like to say, about all these stars that you let go, and they went on to become much bigger stars in the WWF, whether it was Cactus Jack or Steve Austin or Chris Jericho or anyone in between. Out of all the stars that left and, and went over and made a bigger name for themselves in the industry and money for their family, where does Jericho rank on the list? Number two. Behind the obvious Steve Austin. Yep. I don't know that anybody could argue with that, but we'll find something new to argue about next week. Bet your dollar on that. We'll see you next week. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.